Hello and welcome to Entmoot, the Battle Games of Middle-Earth podcast all about the Middle-Earth strategy battle game from Games Workshop. I'm Harry and this is episode 83 of the podcast and we're back doing Teams events and this is really exciting because I think the last one I did of these uh, kinds of events was um, the the Warhammer World Team event uh, with Sean Spool and the gang, uh, which was brilliant. I really enjoyed it and I think I was... I was very, very effusive in my praise. I was very, very complimentary about uh, the the format of that event, about just how it all works. Uh, you know, you kind of have four people, or or in this case, six. We'll get into that in a second. But you know, and, and you work together to create army lists. You work together to then um, be drawn against other teams, which perhaps uh, you can try and sort of rig your games or, or that sort of stuff to try and get the better matchups. All that sort of stuff. Really exciting. And um, so, really enjoyed that. So when there was an announced a six-player team event um, in Nottingham, uh, very close to uh, to where I live, I, I was I, I jumped at the chance. Organised by Seven City Collectibles, um, which regularly go along to uh, uh, events run by Will Champion of uh, of that uh, illustrious establishment, and uh, was really excited by this one. So with that in mind, um, it was it was just get on it, get a team of people together, um, had the fella bellies, which is the GBHL team of. The year so that's the great british hobbit leagues teams uh championship of 2023 this is the first time i'd ever done it uh, where you could all club together and get your points and try and uh, get your team to win um we had all already clubbed together nine people, uh, or I think it was eight, actually. Maybe nine. I don't know. Um, and we said, we said, right, OK, come on, guys. Who can get to this event? So uh, we, we rallied a few folk, uh, six players in the end, heading off to Nottingham for this good versus evil tournament um, with six players uh, on the team. And then you kind of rig or try and rig, we'll talk about that in a second, um, the games to your advantage, which uh, in in a process called The Draft. Now, I'll be honest, I still don't really understand The Draft. Um, the Draft is this this sort of way of, of uh, sort of drawing your, your teams, and, and it's like a really long... Um, really long spreadsheet, uh, not spreadsheet, um, uh, PowerPoint slide show thing to try and work it out. But I'll try and try and roughly um, run run through it for you. So essentially what you do, first, uh, the team captain rolls a dice, uh, and if the captain uh, rolls a one or three, um, then both teams uh, nominate a good army uh, and board for its play-on. If it's four six, they nominate an evil army and a board for its play-on, and, and if they have to roll off if they... If they um, selected the same board so that's what you start with you both start by putting a same faction army onto a board and you choose the the terrain and all that sort of stuff so that's the start that's the first step uh, so essentially each team have provided a good team let's say for example and then both captains then select an army of the opposite allegiance to face that nominated army so um i believe this is in uh, this is not in secret or is it in secret? Let's have a look. Uh, yeah, it might. It, I think that you, you, the first te- the army that you put forward is not a secret. So then the second army that people choose to not. So we're going right. Okay. Say for example, I've put down the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, we're going to choose from our three evil armies which uh, uh, army wants to take on the Fellowship. That sort of thing. 
once we've done that, uh, both sides obviously get the chance to do that. And so it sort of levels out. Uh, and then uh, you now do the opposite. So you do uh, evil armies uh, and you put them out and you do the same sort of matching them up. And then eventually you end up um, with a situation where most people have somehow managed to rig the game in their favour, sort of. And then you hope to God that you're, uh, you've done a good job or uh, your captain has done a good job. And then you play and then... Uh, what happens is you you get a kind of win for the team or a loss for the team. So that is so if you say you've got three wins um, and three losses as a draw, but if you've got four win, uh, or like major wins uh, and major minor losses and all that sort of stuff. So overall, as a team, you might get a minor win if you've got three, uh, two major wins, a minor win, a minor loss, and two major losses or something like that. Um, and then you go into the next round of play again. So that's the kind of setup of the team thing. I realise that was a bit complicated, but we've got to get we've got to get that established in your head right now because otherwise we're not going to get anywhere with the rest of the podcast. So with that in mind, it's time to build an army. Build me an army worthy of Yes, that's right. Uh, building an army, uh, not for Mordor this time. I'm, I'm having to take a good army. And that was because after much wrangling in advance of the tournament, um, we, we, just, we, sort of, we had to work out three goods and three evils. And I've got loads of armies. So I was just, you know, basically relying on other people to choose uh, their armies. But I'll just briefly run through what the rest of the, the team had. So we've got Harry West, who uh, coming along, he's got a green Lothlorien army. He's got Galadriel, Celeborn and Rumil uh, with an excessive number of uh, pikes uh, he's got 40 models in this 800 point list uh, i don't know whether i mentioned the points already 800 points uh, he's got like six bows not very good we keep telling him uh, to bring more bows but hey ho um but he's also got 15 guard of the galadrim court lots of fight six in the army the logic there being we might be able to rig that in his favor <clears throat> to face off against an army where fight six is going to absolutely smash it say for example the Dragon Emperor. That was one of the thoughts. Um, the next army is Jason Riley. He's bringing the Riders of Theoden. Uh, and Jason um, has had great success in the past with his Riders of Theoden, but with more of a skirmishing force. So uh, he decided, although we did suggest the uh, Royal Guard um, army sort of, you know, go heavy on them, um, he, he he didn't have enough of them yet to um, to make an army and, and ha- had had some real success. I think he came fifth or something like that in a, in a GBHL 100 not so long ago um, with this exact army. So he thought, let's not change anything. So he's got Fed and Airmare, a Captain and Dernhelm alongside um, uh, just, just Riders of Rohan. I think there's one Royal Guard or two Royal Guard in there somewhere. Uh, and he's got 37 models, which is still quite a lot. Um, and then uh, we'll go to the Evil Army before we come back to my good. We've got Tim Elwes, a regular on the podcast. He's got the Army of Gothmog. So again, we thought maybe good versus evil, we might be able to rig this in our favour, uh, try and get him against some men. You know, he's he's going to go absolutely massive numbers in this list, or we hoped. Uh, maybe even he'd be OK against something like Easterlings, you know? Like the Fight Five, you know, it doesn't really help them that much. Um, and of course... With the time of the orc and the um, hatred men, we thought maybe he'd be, have a good chance against those Easterlings because we just expected quite a lot of Easterlings, even Black Numenorians, that sort of stuff. Who knows? Um, or, or just men, gen. Oh no, 
what am I talking about? That he's evil. Duh. So anyway, we we did we we thought um, maybe Lake Town and uh, you know the all those sorts of things, Arnor that seem to be uh, creeping back into the meta. Um, maybe maybe he'd do all right against them. He's got fifty three models in this list. He's got Gothmog, Goroth, Guritz, an Orc Shaman, and a Drummer. Um, pretty good though. Uh, solid solid as a rock uh, army. Then we've got Pete Pete Chamberlain. He's got his Depths of Moria Legion. Uh, so he's got the Balrog. Um, he likes using um, Moria Black Shields. And again, a lot of these armies, we we sort of thought if we can rig the matchups uh, in our favour, then maybe maybe we'd be able to uh, be able to achieve great things. And uh, we thought, uh, well, Pete thought particularly he can use his Black Shield army. So he's got uh, the Balrog with six Black Shields, uh, with just shields, six with spear, uh, a Black Shield drummer, some prowlers, uh, and then a captain um with just sort of a load of more goblins and some prowlers then he's got two black shield shamans for the shatter effect and the tremors which is very exciting um and uh, and then just a load of more, more goblins he's only got 42 models but he does have a balrog and a couple of sh- black shield shamans which um in a practice game we had not uh, uh, just before the event um he absolutely ruined me with those black shield shamans it was absolutely horrible uh, and we chose to bring Aaron Pullen along. Uh, Aaron Pullen, a, a, a top table uh, player, he's very good. Um, he's uh, had a couple of big ninety win, uh, ninety pointer wins uh, over the course of the year. They're the uh, sort of mid ranking uh, GBHL events, and um, he has decided to bring Smaug and nothing else. So we did have a debate about um, whether to spend the hundred points on a ring wraith or, or something like that. Uh, we decided that in scenarios like assassination stuff like that, maybe that wouldn't work out. Although. In retrospect, um, somebody else brought a Smaug to the tournament and uh, and they added a Witch King uh, to that list and gave uh, made Witch King the leader um, and Smaug therefore uh, didn't didn't get sort of giveaway VPs for being wounded, which uh, in retrospect was a smart idea. I think for some reason we just didn't think that the, uh, uh, the, the Smaug wouldn't be leader, even though, you know, he can't, he, I think I think he's here a legend, and there's no rules to say that he has to be leader. So maybe that was a bit of a faux pas. We did think about ring rays and stuff, but uh, not about the witch king. Uh, and of course, you know, the witch king, you can just have a horse and hide in it, hide in a bush for the whole tournament. So that's the rest of the uh, the lists. And then for me, I decided to bring on a good alliance. A green alliance of Numenor and Rivendell. Yes, the Numenor are back, and um, this was partially just because I'd never actually run this particular army before, um, and I had it all, and I, I just didn't fancy anything else, you know. Like the uh, people were talking about dwarves and things like that, and I have got my Kazadum dwarves. I could have brought Durin along and um, so on. I, I mean, based on the last episode, maybe I should have brought the Great Smith along. We'll talk about the Great Smith uh, a bit later on, but I was thinking. I don't know. Is uh, is that is that a good idea? Uh, maybe not. Uh, well, I couldn't get the Smith along, but maybe Durin. I thought it might be worth it. But no, decided to bring back the Numenor because there was a list that I wrote um, for. Um, well, I think I wrote three lists for an eight hundred point tournament earlier on in the year, and the uh, basically I, I gave it patrons a chance to vote on the list, uh, which one they think I should take. And I believe they decided that I should take um, Gil-Galad and Elendil, which annoyingly was the episode that I released six months late recently. Um, and, and it was really good. I enjoyed using it. But um, uh, I, this list was the other list I wrote because I think I think it might be quite good. Uh, so in it, we have Elendil, High King of Gondor and Anna with a horse and a shield. 
I, I, I still I still think he's much much better than a sealed door. Um, maybe maybe in a different kind of alliance, um, a sealed door would be worth bringing. Um, I, I I've seen him used with sort of uh, a sealed door and some Numenorians a captain and then mostly elves. I don't like it like that. I want lots and lots of Numenorians. So, Elendil comes along with 14 Numenorians with spear and shield, a, a, a warrior with banner, shield and spear, and three warriors in Numenor with bow and spear. He's got a captain alongside him with a full warband. Also, Elendil's warband was full. Um, a captain with 10 warriors in Numenor with spear and shield, uh, two warriors in Numenor with bow and uh, spear. Of course, the captain's on a horse, has the lance, has the heavy armour and the shield. He's got the whole kit and caboodle. Then Warband 3 is my Rivendell Alliance. And this, my dear friends, is Arrestor. Yeah, so this is what I wanted to bring last time because um, I just thought he's a bit different, isn't he? Um, he's got just two attacks, two points of might, two will, two fate. He causes terror. He's defense seven. He's fight six. Got strike. He's got throwing daggers. And uh, he rerolls wounds on his throwing daggers and in combat. So I... Th- I- and I've, I've, I think I spoke to a guy called Luke Hilder, uh, if you've met him. Luke, a lovely chap. Also forgot to bring his army to Lord of the Imps. Brilliant. Um, and basically, actually, that was part of the reason that I took this uh, uh, arrest orb was because, or, or this time, was because I basically painted him up for uh, Luke to borrow during this tournament. Um, he'd forgotten his stuff. I brought him from home um, and I'd given him a quick paint job the night before. And then after the tournament, I decided to finish him off. And um, I thought, well, I've got to put him on the table myself, see how he is, because uh, Luke really rates him. So I thought, bring a restore along. So a restore comes along for the journey. Uh, he also has with him one high elf warrior with a bow, two high elf warriors with a spear and shield, and one Rivendell knight for that extra speed. Of course, that could be very handy um, in objectives and all that sort of stuff. And alongside him, there's one more character. We have Bilbo Baggins with Middleful Coat, Sting, and the Ring. The Ring. So this was the the thought being was you can't have Elendil with a sealed door, but you can have Elendil with Bilbo for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why either. It didn't make any sense at all. But I thought, why not? Uh, the the alliance matrix restricts you from being able to bring uh, a sealed door and Gilgalad, I think, and Elendil and uh, a sealed door, but it doesn't stop you bringing Bilbo Baggins from the Rivendell list. So that's what I wanted to take. I've got thirty eight models. I've got the ring, I've got Elendil, I've got a captain, I've got a restore. Maybe I'm a bit low in might. I'd prefer to have two heroes with three might rather than the captain and a restore. Uh, but I do get Bilbo Baggins, who has one point of might as well, which could be handy uh, before he puts the ring on to call moves and stuff like that. Maybe just help him, help himself out, I don't know. Um, but either way, there's that assassination potential with the ring, isn't there? So um, uh, the only thing I found in the pr- practice game, uh, which I played a Balrog in, um, is that... Bilbo, I just need to remember during this tournament not to put his ring on too early because he only walks four inches, right? So he's going to arrive to the party a bit later than most. So, you know, if you've you've marched a couple of times or whatever, if you get to the middle, by the time you've done two or three moves, he's like a whole move away. Um, So he arrives a bit later and then you want him really kind of going through the line and, and either trapping or getting heroes uh, with uh, halving the fight value or or joining little um, nooks and crannies. So he needs to move around a bit. So he often arrives uh, a bit late. That's what I found uh, in the practice game anyway. Um, but also, if you put the ring on early, you roll a one or two, the opponent moves him once, even just once, he's back four inches. So that means he's two turns away. So have I spent 80 points or however many points Bilbo is 
um, on a guy who is going to take very, very long times to get to somewhere and then maybe arrive and then walk back again um, because I keep rolling a one or two on uh, the ring check. So I need to make sure I get him into position, then put the ring on for that key turn. Bam, half a fight value, assassinate something. After that, it doesn't matter so much. But we'll see if all of this works. And, of course, we see if we can work out how the draft works after um, uh, confusingly introducing this podcast with it earlier on. <sighs> lots, to, lots to do. Right. We'll, we'll be back to the tournament in a bit. But first, let's delve into the email inbox because it's time for... Riddles of the Dark. Yes, that's right. It's time for Riddles in the Dark. And we had a competition again. That's right. And in fact, the winner already knows who has won. So I, I, I kind of, I probably shouldn't have said that really, because actually um, you, you might be listening thinking, oh, have I got the prize? But the, the prize, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, was the SBG magazine Christmas Advent Edition, which was fantastic. Um, it was released a few years ago. Um, and uh, sort of as PDFs uh, that were uh, sort of saved in the Great British Hobbit League Facebook page. But uh, uh, Tom and Damien released a printed edition, a surprise print edition uh, in November, and uh, they said, right, get it, get, get your hands on it for Christmas time. And I bought one for myself, bought one for my patrons, uh, sent it over to Bilbo. Um, I don't think that's his real name, but that's the patron supporter <laughs> who got one because uh, I did a special patron prize uh, stream. I did like a live stream exclusively for uh, members of my patron scheme. If you just search Patreon uh, Battle Games in Middle Earth, um, then you'll be able to find out uh, a bit more about that. But uh, And it's always sort of in linked in my show notes and my YouTube channel and all that. Anyway, but I also said I'm going to give one away to someone on this very podcast, and that someone already knows, but I'll, I'll just run through the riddle answers because essentially I asked you, who speaks next in this clip from the Hobbit films or the Lord of the Rings films, and what does that person say? Here's the clip. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So can you work it out? Well, uh, I'm going to read through the answers and that might give it away a little bit. Here we go. Uh, the first answer we've got from uh, Callum Morsman was the clue that I think helped me was the music sounding elvish. So it was a case of looking at every scene that included elves and the sound of gentle paddling. I believe the next person is dot, dot, dot. And you are absolutely correct. Uh, you got it right. And you say Merry Christmas and hope to give, uh, hope to one day give you a game. Yes, I, yeah, that'd be really nice, Kevin. Uh, fingers crossed we, we cross paths. Uh, Tim Pasher has been in touch. He says, as for Riddles in the Dark, I think it's from the extended editions. Ooh. Uh, when blah, 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 blah. And they say blah, 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 blah. And you're correct. Well done, Tim. Correct answer. Well done. Chuck Sadler's been on. He says, hi, Harry. I hope I'm not too late for the Riddles in the Dark for the Entmoot episode 82. I believe the next words are from Galulep. And you are correct. Almost gave that away. I think you probably probably get it from the from the uh, clues now. But James Fotherby's also, and you were correct, of course, uh, Chuck. Uh, James Fotherby, he's been on. He says, This one almost had me stumped, but I think I've cracked your code. If the SBG magazine and offer is themed around Christmas, then so must be the clip. And what is more Christmassy than presents? Well, I would say sharing in the love of your family and friends, which is, of course, all the Fellowship of the Ring, 
and all of the two towers and so on and so on. Um, but you're you're quite right. That is the that is the idea. Gift giving was the was the bit of a clue. But that that's not that's not everyone. The last person, well, not the last person actually. Uh, one of the first time uh, first people who got in touch was Jesse Patton. They said first time they got in touch and they won the SPG magazine. We need a big round of applause sound effect there, maybe. And there was a sound, of a sound effect, I hope, uh, if I remember to put that in an edit. In fact, I think I won't do the sound effect just so that I sound like an idiot just then. Anyway, Jesse, well done, well done. Uh, congratulations on winning the SBG magazine. I did randomly draw you out of a hat, uh, out of the, the correct answers, so uh, bad luck for everyone else, uh, but well done to Jesse. Jesse, uh, I, st- I sent this quite... Uh, quite a while ago now, uh, not not ages, so hopefully it arrived in time for Christmas. Um, fingers crossed it did. Um, and do let me know, Jesse, if uh, if it didn't. And thank you very much for getting in touch. There you go. That's Riddles in the Dark. And of course, you need to hear the answer. The answer is this. My gift for you, Legolas, is a bow of the Galadrim, worthy of the skill. Of our woodland kin. Of course it was. Of course it was Galadriel's gift giving. Uh, so, of course, uh, Galadriel is the next person who spoke there, which is all very, very exciting. Now, uh, I do have one more little bit to do uh, after delving into the email inbox. It's, of course, in relation to... Christians. Questions that need answering. Yeah, questions that need answering. Now, I did give you a bit of a open target i think a wide-ranging target on this one it was it was about the um confessions of a gamer confessions of a gamey gamer um that was what i was talking about after my sort of slight i, I think I, th- I felt just a little bit guilty after winning that game um uh, in the end of the previous podcast uh, against um uh, against the fiefdoms army it was a really cool clansman army uh, run by uh, hector no, not Hector. Was it Hector? Oh, God, this is even bad. Oh, God, it's terrible and embarrassing. I've forgotten who it was. Uh, anyway, uh, I will move on swiftly because, um, essentially, I felt a bit guilty because uh, I'd won the game and I really pushed to win the game and I felt like I had chivied him along. Uh, Hugo, that was it. Uh, I think I think I ch- chivied Hugo along a bit too aggressive, not aggressively, but I think I chivied him along at the expense of fun, which was bad. I felt bad, and no matter what people have said, and lots of people have been very complimentary about this, um, and been very kind and supportive, um, I still think I still think I was in the wrong a little. I felt guilty, and my conscience says I felt guilty, and my conscience is is the thing that I need to pay attention to. Um, but here are some people who've been in touch who don't have consciences. No, no, <laughs> I joke, I joke. But here, there, I, I, a wide variety of people uh, did get in touch about this. Huge long emails vast amounts of text sent to me. Um, I'll I'll have abridged many of these emails, so I can only apologise in advance for that. But um, I'm, I basically just wanted to delve into the inbox and have a bit of a chat about all the different bits that people have sent me. So let's get started. Uh, first one is this one from Jamie Wiggins. Uh, Jamie says, don't feel bad for the questions you asked. Perfectly reasonable. And also wanting to win shouldn't make you feel bad. Wouldn't call it playing gamey. I call it playing the game. Get rid of that conscience. It only gets in the way of your rise to the top. 
Uh, and I like, I don't try to be horrible in a game and won't be rude or disrespectful, but if someone is upset that my army beats theirs or a roll-off goes my way, that's not my fault. Or if I play a strong army, that's within the rules. From Jamie Wiggins. Thanks, Jamie, for that. That's, uh, that's uh, I don't know whether I agree with all the sentiments there. There's a reason they call him Gamey Jamie. Anyway, uh, next one. Uh, this one's from uh, Hector from Spain, uh, who organised a small tournament in Alicante, and he took the breaking of the fellowship. He wants to tell us a tale about this. He says he came last, but had a wonderful time. He said the top tables were pits of do- solid Dol Gulder, Isengard, and the Dragon Emperor. His point is, you can either go competitive or more friendly, but you can never forget trying to have fun at any event. I wish you the best and hope you keep making amazing content. Regards, Hector. Uh, and he says, he, he also mentions the thing about uh, the Mordor siege bows, um, that there's a way of improving their ability to hit by using a member of the Mordor war catapult, which I must say, I did know about that. Uh, sorry, I did know about that, but um, I I just didn't do it um, because I wanted uh, I, I wanted to just just try out them. I wasn't that bothered about them hitting, although they did. Um, so yeah, so he's sort of uh, pointing out that you know you don't have to be uber competitive, you don't have to be uber fun, but you you should you should try your best to have fun at any event essentially. So uh, sort of uh, his his point. He's, he shared his tale anyway, didn't he? Uh, patron uh, supporter Pete North. So uh, just so you know, I am uh, abridging some of these stories, so apologies if they, they feel truncated, but there's a lot. Uh, patron supporter Pete North says, uh, we play the game to have fun. Uh, so I cut a bit at the start. We play the game to have fun. That should be the core purpose. However, how people achieve that fun is subjective. He says he's had a casual game against many of his local opponents where his own game has descended into madness, zero strategy, and lost by a landslide, but still enjoyed every minute. And uh, in quotes, discreet nod to most players of Sense City, he says. In comparison, I've won games 12-0 at tournaments. Not often, but it has happened. Well, I've not enjoyed it because my opponent turned up to win. And then because they've been trounced, haven't reacted well. And you can feel the saltiness in the air, he says. We all should also accept there's a small minority, a dark element, of all gaming communities where people will do anything to win. And thankfully, in SBG, they're tiny in number. I guess my point is that the unwritten social contract is governed by one's own moral compass. If you show up uh, at a GBHL 100 with a fluffy list, expect to get wrecked by someone with the meta and on a mission. If you show up at a thematic 80-pointer, equally expect that there's someone there that skipped the memo because their ego won't let them have fun without winning. Doesn't make them a bad person, it's just a different idea of what's fun, and maybe they're just a little selfish. All the best, good luck in your games, Pete North. That's a that's a fair point. I think maybe maybe I maybe I missed the memo in this one. Still, Elliot Moss writes in about the spark of this conversation, which is how I described that I knew at the start I needed to play quickly to crack through my opponent's clansmen. I'll skip a bit and pick up from Elliot here. He says, It seems very difficult to acknowledge your own bias and play fairly when you know your opponent has the same dilemma. With no guarantees, they will do the same. One potential solution I've seen used in other wargaming communities, such as Kings of War and Warmaster, is a chess clock. Each player gets half the time for the allocated round, e.g. one hour each for a two-hour game, and if one player runs out of time they immediately lose the game where i've seen it used is pretty rare for this to happen i feel the drawbacks of this are one that it'll be harder to implement for mesbg owing to the mixed player phases and two that it's another barrier to people already intimidated by the prospect of a tournament and adds extra psychological pressure to those playing perhaps a compromise would be to use this on just the top table where it may matter most would love to hear your thoughts on this um elliot i don't know whether it was you or whether it was someone else who wrote in uh, talking about chess clocks before um Personally, I I don't like the idea. Um, I think it would encourage... Um, it, it, I don't think it'll actually help because it's not very easy to know where your 
your turn starts and where another per- person's turn ends. Obviously, for the movement phase, that's fine. But even in the movement phase, there's magical resistance and there's magical casting. So how would you measure that? So if I start casting a, a spell at, um, at your Balrog, say, for, for instance, to immobilise it, you've got 10 will and you've got resistance to magic. I've cast it on a six and you're thinking, well, this is a big turn. And then I start going, hold on, my chest clock's cl- uh, going down here. You've got to decide right away. Do we pause the chess clock? You start it again. How does that work? So, like, and and it just feels, it feels like it adds a layer of uh, of complication to a, an already complicated game where you are going backwards and forwards between people all the time. And I, I think you're right that it, it's intimidating and and it's just hard to implement. And I actually think the problem is solved relatively well by just you know sort of working together and sort of saying you know we need to get through this game quickly or you know. Let's let's not dilly dally. Let's set a pace, you know that sort of thing. Maybe maybe uh, that is harder. I think this is the problem where I I stumbled into it was that it's harder to do that when perhaps you're at a, <clears throat> an event where people are, are, are being more relaxed um, and you're trying to be more competitive, which was the instant for me, or perhaps uh, against a newer player where you know they're they're you know they're they're sort of still trying to understand things uh, and are asking questions and things like that and. Neither of those are very accurately um, helped by a clock. I'd be interested to see someone try it. I don't think it should be picked up permanently. I'm, I'm intrigued at other people's thoughts, though. Get in touch. Entmootpodcast.gmail.com. Now, another one. Uh, this is... Uh, this. Uh, I don't know who this is from. I'll, I'll get to the end. Um, it says... Oh, I, no, sorry. This is still from Elliot. For, so, for your request on MESBG Confessions, I was, and still am at heart, a gamer that did fluffy things for narrative reasons that weren't always good choices from a game perspective. Naturally, I lost most of my games, but I have never really cared about the overall, overall result, win or lose. Generally, I did something half to two-thirds of the way through uh, the game that would cause a big swing. I knew the small circle I played with were more competitive, so figured they were happy to be winning. Until they held a sort of mini intervention where they pointed out that from their point of view I was just throwing games I was ultimately robbing them of the greater satisfaction of a hard fought victory like everyone in the hobby I want my opponents to have a good time so I took their feedback on board and played more seriously I don't always get it right and I still lose a lot but the games are much closer than they used to be and my opponents are happier with the experience sorry for the long email feel like there was a lot to cover looking forward to hearing your thoughts and other people's confessions thanks keep up the good work Elliot Elliot Moss. So I, I think that's a really interesting example. And this is, this, I, I think I've spoken about, or I've certainly heard people talk about this before. There are certain moments in games when, I don't know, if you're, if, say for example, you're, you're in the first game at a tournament or an event and a competitive event at that, and you're playing against someone who maybe is there for fun, maybe they've brought a very thematic list and they're doing something silly because it's funny. You know, oh, let's, uh, I don't know, I, I can't think of a great example at the moment, but let's just say Pippin's, uh, Pippin's charged into something that, you know, he knows he's going to kill a die, uh, die against because that's what Pippin would do, okay? Sure, Pippin charges a troll, and he, he fights and kills a troll in the, the movies, uh, sorry, in the books, charges a Mordor troll in the game with no, no assistance. Sounds like a, a fun thing. But what if it's a game of fog of war or a game of assassination and um, by Pippin dying, you have given your opponents three uh, victory points. And then by the end of the tournament, that person has won the tournament purely because they got an extra three victory points in the uh, first game or because they they played or they won 12 mil and then played against a really hard opponent that then they lost against and then didn't win the tournament because of that game. Now, this is where I start getting 
conflicted because I, I think you're right, Elliot, throwing a game can be just as frustrating to people, especially to uh, competitive players. So I, I find that sort of dichotomy really, really interesting to get into. Uh, interesting, interesting stuff from Elliot. Thank you very much for getting in touch. Geordie from the Two Towers podcast wrote in, um, I, he did say a lot, but to keep it focused, here's a bit about this particular particular topic. He says, now just to comment on your statement on the correlation of poor sportsmanship and player skill. So I do think this is a crossroads between weeb loser top tables and chad fun bottom tables. You can tell he's Australian, can't you? All told, I think this may be a one-off teething issue on your ascent from amateur to pro. The fact you've reflected on it, I think, means you'll be acutely aware of the white line fever rears... Oh, sorry. Uh, if the white line fever rears its ugly head. What I will say on behalf of top tables in Australia, there's a point where against top tablers clear and concise... Uh, where against top tablers, clear and concise discussions, known intentions and understanding you want to beat them, not to trick them, means all top uh, top games are a blast. Um, or top V-top games are a blast. Then conversely, in those early games with random pairings, even when coming across a newer or less experienced player, there will be a point where your skill and rules knowledge means you can be certain in competing against them and doing well, and not necessarily always winning. So you get to funnel all that extra processing power into instead jokes and banter. I think it's fair to ask a horde player to play fast, but I agree how you go about it is key. This is just a stepping stone moment from back-to-back podiums. Geordie. Thanks, Geordie. Yeah, good point. Um... That's interesting. I like, Carrie, you sort of say you can funnel the extra brain processing power into jokes and banter, uh, which, of course, are very important. So, yeah, I like that. Um, and, and you're right. May, maybe. Uh, so I, I, I think you're right that top, ta- top, top, top tables, they are where they always seem to be very, uh, very calm. I mean, unless there is a particularly fraught discussion, which doesn't happen as often as you think. It's actually the table two, three, four who are fighting to get to the top or fighting for their first podium a la Entmoot like I did last time, where, where the, 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 the testiness comes in. Now, Alex from Calgary in Canada has written, uh, I've subbed it down a bit, he says, I think the crux of this question boils down to you and your opponent's attitude. Some of the most competitive games I've ever played have been theme-based lists. To me, competitive doesn't look, just mean sweaty or winning, winning at all costs. In our local gaming group, myself and a few other players have had some of the most intense games ever due to movement and stacking traps and going for gaps that exist that your opponent hasn't seen. We have an immense amount of fun and we always finish the game with a, wow, that was wild, how did I misplay my line and allow your Razor to sneak between the fights to assassinate Faramir or something along those lines. This may just be symptomatic of my local local style of competitive play, which I can hopefully sum up for you here, taking inspiration from the rulebook for the game of curling. In quote, a game needs more than one team. Celebrate your opponent's success as if they were your own and commiserate their mistakes as you would your own. I've really pushed this classy style of play in my local uh, and I see it paying dividends all over the province as whenever an out-of-town tournament happens, my local lads almost always not only place in the top three but also win best sportsmanship along the way. I hope that answers your question. Cheers and may the brew rum flow. Alex from Calgary. P.S. Have you had a chance to try out the Piper of Lamadon yet? I found the profile to be very themey to play and extremely fun. So far, the only criticism I have of it as the creator is maybe there needs to be 65 points. Last time, uh, we talked about the um, Pipe uh, of Lamadon. I haven't tried it out. Although maybe I'll get a chance too soon. Who knows? Um, but of course, I did play a, a Lamadon player uh, last time. So there we go. Um, uh, now, is this still from... Uh, Alex from Calgary, I think it might be. As for your confessions of a wargamer, yes, I felt guilty while playing. Far away from losing all my games and getting the wooden spoon, I'm starting to win some now. One out of four or two out of six seems to be the number so far. However, recently at scouring... Oh, sorry, this is from Cameron. I think it is Cameron, yeah. Um... One out of four, two. However, recently at Scaring of Skirlingshire this past week and I won a game. I think I would have still won it regardless, but I still feel bad. 
And this is the crux of it. I used a sorceress blast from Gandalf to push an orc into the Witch King's fell beast. It went off, pushed back, hits were taken, etc, etc. However, the thing I did wrong was I thought that it would dismount the Witch King when it shouldn't have. This meant his big guy was hindered and not as useful over the rest of the game. Overall, I'm unsure this would have swung the game in total, but I still feel bad for doing it and quote-unquote cheating. Later in the exact same game, and a turn or two later, Gandalf was paralysed by a spider's web. I didn't know, and nor did my opponents say, that fate could be spent to save this. Gandalf was then paralysed for about four turns as my Thorin's company tried to defend it. Now, I still won but also felt bitter that I wasn't told that I could have prevented this easily. Overall, I felt bitter on both sides of the coin. I felt weird because I both did something wrong and had something wrong done to me. It was a very strange feeling overall, and five days on, I'm still confused uh, if I'm annoyed at myself for cheating, annoyed at my opponent for not explaining rules fully, or annoyed at both. I understand I could have looked at the paralysed rules, and my opponent could have looked up Sorcerer's Blast. I feel we both probably did wrong, but I'm still annoyed even though I won. After the game, we both looked at the two rules, said sorry to each other, shook hands, and continued on with the tournament. My opponent came dead last, and I came 46th or something like that. To add on, I don't think you need to feel too bad about the red mist coming over you. Yes, you played in a fluffy tournament, but there was still a first place to go for. These things happen. You apologise to your opponent on the podcast, and that makes it all right in my eyes. You keep doing what you're doing. You're doing great. Yours, Cameron Ruari, I think that's right, of uh, Paints on a Forup. Paints on a Forup, check it out on the old Instagram. Uh, Cameron, I, I think I think your story is, is symptomatic, isn't it, of, of one of those feelings where you just think, I'm... You just, I, I can see, I can sense from the way you've written this how frustrated you are about that experience, and 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 it sounds like it wasn't the other opponent, the opponent's fault either. It's just that neither of you were particularly knowledgeable about either the spells, perhaps, and and maybe you're using them for the first time, or maybe you weren't. I don't know. But either way, that that sort of that sort of thing is exactly the sort of thing I'm talking about. I'm really glad you shared this one because it just shows that winning. Um, can can sometimes make you feel bad, and you shouldn't want, and you shouldn't have to feel bad because actually, neither you both it sounded like you both uh, played it um, incorrectly at times, and that's fine. And as you've all also pointed out, it it means you know you're getting a couple more wins perhaps nowadays. You're getting a bit more com- uh, a bit more competent with the rules. But if you're using a new profile, you're coming up against a new profile, or you just forget the rules. You haven't played in a while, or whatever it is, still make mistakes, and that is absolutely fine. Uh, Let's carry on with Chuck, Chuck Sadler. Um, he says, the pods keep being awesome. Good job on the third place podium finish. Don't beat yourself up too much about the game against Hugo. We all get too hasty at times. Also, shout out to Hugo for running an awesome list. I'd love to see the Captain Lamadon profile. I think he did run through it in the podcast. Um, just a captain profile, basically. Really interesting to hear your reflections on your last game and how you weren't the good opponent you wanted to be. I enjoy content that covers things like sportsmanship, fair play, and balancing the fun and the thrill of competition. Sounds like you're a good person to play with, as I often hear people thank you for the coaching and advice in post-game interviews thanks for the good content harry thank you that's yeah i think people do compliment me on that and and i do try and sort of suggest ideas after the game and stuff like that and and i do suggest things throughout as well um uh, but i mean can i be honest about it i don't always suggest them on the top table if i feel like i'm in the running for a win or doing well you know and i'm getting like um, you know maybe i've got three wins and i'm trying to get the four out of six um and it's the last game maybe i'm not as not as willing to share the coaching tips i don't know uh, i'd like to think i do but uh, maybe i don't anyway uh matt mix mix uh Ms. hold on what the hell is this matt i've got i've got rand i don't know whether matt mc mcswizik has gotten in touch. I, I I don't know whether I've I've deleted. I think I might have. I've lost the email. Anyway, you got in touch, Matt. Um, I don't know what's happened to that one. I've I've deleted it somehow. 
By the way, thanks very much for your contribution. I did read it. I can't remember what it said. Um, Michael Haskell's been in touch as well, contributor, patron, all-round great dude. He says, um, no particular confessions to share, but there have been games which have been frustrating and I've not always been able to fully hide said frustrations, but we're all human. Um, He then goes on to suggest a concept, an almost graph, and and this is hard to explain on the radio or on a podcast, but I'll give a go. Um, It's four quadrants. You picture your four quadrants. You've got an X uh, sort of cross in the middle with your axes of, uh, and on either side of this. Um, and two axes grading opponent from newbie to experience in another in tournaments uh, to fluffy to competitive. So, for example, fluffy tournaments right at the bottom of this cross graph, uh, tournament uh, competitive tournaments right at the top, and then um, experienced player on the far right, newbie on the left. Uh, picturing for this... Uh, picturing this for each game may well help in the moral maze, he says. Um, and I guess you, if you sort of imagine... Your scale of competitiveness, your how you're going to play this game, picture picturing this graph may actually help. And a, granted, this isn't exactly um, a, a, a audio friendly thing, but it was really interesting. Um, and it's talking. It's interesting you said it about the moral uh, moral maze, and uh, it's a great idea. And I did talk about it on an Entmoot Live on the YouTube channel a while ago. Um, it's it is really interesting, and just just judging from all these emails. I think it's fascinating uh, that a lot of us are keen to talk about it. It's definitely got us talking. So thank you so much for that, Michael. Now, uh, I've got a couple more. Uh, First one from Tim Pashia, who says, The self-reflection you went through at the end of the episode really resonated me. Can and should I take pride in winning games? I've only started playing MESBG at tournaments since 2021, and in that time learnt a lot about myself through the medium of a competitive gaming environment. Early on, I realised that I find it emotionally a lot easier dealing with a defeat than with a win. I'm not fully sure I understand where that guilt comes from for me, but a big part is perhaps a level of empathy and making sure my opponent also has a good time. I've consciously tried to become better at this through going to more tournaments to put myself slightly outside my comfort zone and to learn how to deal with defeats and wins equally well. I try to rationalise that me and my opponent enter into a social contract when we play. This is another mention of the social contract, interestingly. Uh, As long as both players understand the terms of that contract brackets, are we here to roll some dice in a narrative setting or do we battle it out for the top spot, then everything should be okay. Perhaps, Tim says, in your game with Hugo, you felt that you had a genuine shot at the podium and wanted to give it your all. That is still within the spirit of a theme 80-point tournament where players are rewarded for getting more wins and losses. I don't think you should feel bad for winning or for trying to win if that's what the social contract on Table 2 looked like. When I play the last game of the day on one of the lower tables, I'm just there to have some banter with my opponent and chat about all sorts while we move some models around. As an aside, perhaps this also opens a can of worms around there being a demand for non-tournament MESBG events in the community. I know narrative-driven events are often organised for other game systems and seem to be the norm for the likes of Horus Heresy, for example. Tim makes a really interesting point right at the end there. Strangely, Lord of the Rings is, is lacking in narrative events. I don't know whether it's because it's quite difficult to have narrative events in the sense that you want people to play scenarios in narrative events, I think, you know, Maybe thematic matchups. I guess you could could argue there are events that are, don't encourage, you know, Thona Skulls, for example, or Seven Stones, or or the Rings of Men, which is the one I went to, um, <laughs> which do encourage theme lists and all that sort of stuff. But then people do turn up with competitive um, armies and they want to win as well. And you know, people want to play toy soldiers. Some people want to play it 
competitively and some people don't want to play it competitively. Um, but the people who do want to play it competitively sometimes turn up to every single tournament because they just love it. Um, so maybe you're right. Maybe the theme element of things is uh, is needed. I, I think the problem, as I was going to say, with, with scenarios is that you need to provide all the models often. Um, you, I guess you could encourage people to pro- bring, as a community, to bring... Um, Say, for example, you assign everyone the, the models to bring for certain scenarios and then everyone shares them, but then you're sharing models, which some people don't like, especially if you've put a lot of effort painting into them. So it is strange that Lord of the Rings doesn't have that, but I think it's something that we need to do. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, in terms of the rest of it, I think you were bang on the money. Uh, it's just you, you kind of end, end the contract at the start of the game. Table two of a tournament, even if it's a fluffy tournament, maybe you're expecting a competitive game. Um, and, you know, that's that's... That's just kind of the way it is. So interesting, interesting stuff. Um, and on the the themey thing, themey tournaments, I do have an idea for a, a different kind of event. It's not scenarios or or theme necessarily. It's more about hobby painting side of stuff. I'm thinking, and this is the first time I've said this publicly. I'm thinking of doing a painting championship tournament where everyone comes along, plays some games, but primarily are there for multiple painting competitions. Let me know what you think of that idea. I have fleshed it out a lot more than that, but on the on the face of it, entmootpodcast at, uh, entmoot at gmail.com if you like the idea. Anyway, uh, more on this. There's still more to come. There's not much, uh, many more left. But um, Carl Tinsley's been in touch. He says he almost quit the game after losing all his games for six months in a row. Then realised... Due to most of his opponents being very casual players, he would often, uh, very often allow them a lot of concessions. And so he goes on to say, they made made a mistake, I'd go back and redo it. That measurement could go either way. It's fine, you can do it, he'd say. But I was never allowing myself a concession. Sorry, but I was never allowing myself a confession, he says. And always going in favour of my opponent. Maybe I was so worried they'd have a bad game that I kept giving myself a disadvantage. But I wasn't enjoying it myself. Anyway, there was a very small local tournament I was going to and I was close to not even going. But I did decide to go in the end. This time I said I would hold my opponents to the same standard I hold myself. And guess what? I came second. Turns out I do know how to play the game and I had fun. I was writing this to celebrate me breaking the losing streak and to make a point that the fun of a game is two-way you shouldn't necessarily sacrifice your own enjoyment for someone else's but as i'm writing this i'm worried that what i did is coming across as salty or maybe gamey or just not very nice there is a balance an unwritten understanding with your opponent about what type of game you're playing when you get it right you can have the best games whether super casual or hyper competitive but when there is a misunderstanding someone will be not having as much fun i think this is a general hazard of a social game and all i hope is we get it right most of the time and that's all the messages. I'm sorry there were so many. I mean, there must be 20 minutes worth of podcast there. But so many people are getting in touch about this. It's really interesting. I find it absolutely fascinating, um, this this discussion of social contracts, because, you know, it is it is a thing you do. Ultimately, we're all going to a tournament, not because we're, you know, we're going to be bored or, or frustrated. We're going because we want to have fun. And the, the, the question, of course, is how do you have fun? Do you have fun by winning games do you have fun by having a beer and having a chat with some people who like to paint the same things as you? Do you have fun by, you know, somewhere in the middle? Uh, you know, what what is it? Or, or do, does it vary? Like some tournament to tournament, you know, you might go to one tournament going, ah, no, I don't care about this one. Maybe it's because it's not a competitive tournament. Maybe you've already won enough competitive tournaments and you're not bothered anymore. Or maybe it's another reason. So, I, or, you know, for, so for example, I think I'm guilty perhaps of thinking, Oh, uh, you know, this tournament has fewer of the really top players. Maybe I've got a chance of winning. 
But then on the flip side, the few the top players aren't attracted to this sort of smaller fluffier, maybe less com- competitive tournaments. So maybe that's a bad thing for me to think that I should go and crush the GBHL 80 uh, tournaments and not uh, not, not the 100-pointers when actually it should be the other way around. A really, really fascinating conversation. Um, feel free to carry on the debate. Um, I, it took me a while to sub these ones down, um, but I think it was well worth it. So thank you so much for everyone getting in touch. Um, I realise it's taking up a long bit of the podcast, but hopefully you don't mind because it is a fascinating topic. So with that in mind... We're done with the uh, Riddles in the Dark. We've issued a winner. Uh, Jesse got the magazine. We've done the um, uh, the questions that need answering. And now it's time to head to the tournament. For the team's event, I've got my Numenor, got Ellen Dilma, Captain, Arrestor and Bilbo. Um, and we've got to do some rigging. I went through the, the uh, how we do the games at the start. How will I get on? Let's crack on. Stop. I'm already late. Late for what? I'm going on an adventure. Game number one here at the Heroes of the West, and we've got a game against Mike Byrne. So, uh, first, before we talk to Mike, um, looking down on our tables, we've got a hell of a team uh, against us. This is the Ringer team, and they've got some uh, a real variety of armies, so uh, pretty nasty stuff. And Mike, do you, do you know the, the summary of uh, most of your armies that you've got here at the tournament today? Or uh, are you, you, you don't know, that's fair enough. No, You're I... just a Ringer, you've been drafting the last minute, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I know you've got a Dragon Emperor, you've got a Smaug, there's a Lothlorien army... I think there's a Riders of Rohan army somewhere. And there's a Gondor army. Yeah, there's a Gondor army as well. So Galadriel. Galadriel, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got, uh, got some, some nasty stuff. But you are bringing uh, what army to the tabletop for the whole weekend? Uh, Assault and Helmsleep. So what have you got in Legendary. it? I've got n- nine crossbows, three captains, ballista, uh, nine berserkers, I think it is. Mm. Yeah, you don't and see berserkers often, which is nice, yeah. And an awful lot of pikes. An awful lot of pikes. And, demolition uh, and a demolition team. That was the big thing that you missed. So, um, Lords of Battle was the scenario round one. Um, yeah. you, you told me right at the start, uh, after we, we did all the draft thing to, uh, to move people into the right spots, um, you sort of mentioned that you were returning to the fray after a long absence from the game. So, this is quite a new experience for you. Is that right? Yeah. First competitive game since Grand Tournaments when I was 16. So, 14 right. years ago. Right. Okay. So, the game's so, changed a bit but since then. Well. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, did you know much about the scenario, much about my uh, my army, and, and you know, did you fancy your chances? I guess. Didn't know anything about the scenario or your army. I'm just here to have fun. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. What was your plan going into it? Kill as much as possible. <laughs> Didn't work. It, it, yeah. So uh, basically, you deployed with uh, your ballista on one flank. I'd, I think by that point, I'd uh, put my captain in the middle. So you yeah. wanted your ballista quite far away from the captain, um, and. And I deployed the rest of my guys on that f- flank uh, where the, the, so the captain was there. You'd put your, to completely avoid the captain, which was quite sensible. But it yeah. also allowed Ellendil to deploy sort of much closer to the, um, the ballista and hide behind a, a, a bit of ruin. And on the other flank, you'd put your captain, a one war, uh, warband, and some dudes in the middle. And I think, to be honest, I, I kind of think that the, the deployment kind of lost yeah. you this game in a way because yeah. um, spoiler alert uh, it, I, I did end up winning this but essentially I could I could march my captain to join Elendil on the, the other flank and just avoid one of your whole war bands which was also the one with the fewest crossbows in I think it had three in total so, yeah. so, so do, do, do you think that's fair? 
Yeah, that's fair. That's me not remembering competitive gaming that well. Yeah, and that's but. fair enough. But um, as, as the game went on, um, I sort of marched in and, and essentially tried my luck to just poke as many holes in. Of course, Lords of Battle is all about just killing stuff. So I think because I had my, my whole army against sort of two-thirds of yours and, and I was managing to get closer and closer to the ballista so you had very few turns to shoot with the ballista it, it yeah it, it, it didn't didn't really go uh, your way but it's fair to say some of your ballista rolls could have been better all of my ballista rolls could have been better I think what four rounds of shooting only one person died yeah that's terrible and and I mean we, we talked about it beforehand about the re-rolls but I mean basically the first turn you rolled a one to hit luckily you re-rolled it to hit then a one to scatter re-rolled it and looked at it and it, it, I think it got a two or something like that yeah. and then it happened again but you got you kept getting that one to scatter yeah. even after the re-roll it was really really unlikely to happen yeah that was just unlucky dice rolls which stopped most of my shooting including the crossbows just couldn't shit couldn't hit anything yeah it was it was pretty one-sided uh, because of that i think you know if you'd have managed to whittle some of my guys down uh, you know even taking a few off it your urukai were starting to fight back and you did get quite a lot of kills over the course of the game but um, it was really those early turns where i just had such a um, such an advantage in terms of numbers and I had my right combats for free so uh, Elendil didn't whiff a combat at all in the whole game so he was just chopping through heroes through uh, uh, through troops like nobody's business it was uh, it was pretty rough I mean as the game did advance you got some you got some good moments like like the bomb uh, was was pretty handy but again the bomb was on the sort of wrong side really I just went yeah. avoided the bomb for, for most of the turn but it did do some da- damage I mean I can't quite remember how, how, how did how much did it kill can you remember uh, it killed I think six of your guys and your captain so yeah. oh and then you took out four of mine so good use there yeah yeah got rid of the captain ha- say Ellendil yeah yeah exactly that, that's the thing either Ellendil Bilbo Arrest or any of these people but and um, Bilbo was kind of pointless in this game because you got such little fight value that it didn't matter but he did help um, a little bit uh, fighting some stuff Arrest or we kind of underperformed but it was kind of okay. He, he didn't die, um, which is one of the main things. But uh, all in all, it ended up being a, a 10-0 victory to me, which um, I think I think, I, I think it was very unlikely that I was ever going to get the triple based just on the number of models we both had. But um, I managed to get the double in terms of the wound tally and uh, I managed to kill your leader. And let's be honest, that was that was always going to happen with Elendil versus uh, uh, an Urukai captain with an extra attack. Is It's not much of a fight, is it? No. <laughs> Elendil needed to die by the ballista or the bomb. Didn't happen. Yeah. So he just went through the army. Yeah. And, and by that point, you were like, well, either I'd wait for... Elendil to arrive by the end of the game um, and I might be able to blow it up or I bo- explode early on when I've got a chance to actually kill some dudes which yeah. seemed the wise choice yeah especially because you only rolled a two on the, the wound thing anyway so you wouldn't have done any damage to Elendil you probably would have yeah you might have killed him and that's that yeah those dice rolls got me again yeah exactly well either way uh, Mike I mean Considering this is your first game in a very long time, you've, you shouldn't be uh, disappointed by the uh, the scores you got. As you say, you're a ringer, so it doesn't yeah. really matter anyway. But I think, yeah, it was all lost in deployment, really, and, and that's easy to do, especially when you haven't played in so long. So uh, uh, best of luck in the rest of the tournament, and hopefully uh, hopefully the rest of the team is uh, making up for your loss. I know we've, we lost massively against the Smaug, so, uh, yeah, I think... Uh, 
we'll have to wait and see how the rest of the team does. But either way, best of luck for the rest of the tournament, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Game number two here at the team's event. And uh, we've been, well, we didn't do great in the uh, first round. I realise I haven't spoken about the, the team element of it much. Uh, I will talk with Aaron Pullen, team captain, in a few minutes' time uh, about, uh, about the draft so far, how it's all worked. But first, let's talk about game number two, seize the prize against James Goodhamey. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank that, you for having me. Well, thank you. Uh, so, first of all, um, how have you found the, the team format, the draft, and all this sort of stuff? I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I love the toing and throwing element. The well, we want this matchup, but you guys want that matchup. So we're, we're really trying to select the best matchups that we can get. It's interesting because it gives you agency in that that moments before the t- game. You sort of look at the list, you're at sizing each other up, you're talking about it with your teammates, and there's a lot of excitement ahead of that game. You're going, oh, I could take them. Don't think I want that, and all this. So it's quite fun beforehand, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely great. Um, it's, especially as it's good versus evil. Yeah. Um, it definitely makes the army building before the event even more interesting because you can have that like very swingy army that you can protect exactly really cool so with that in mind um, you've got an evil army obviously I've got my good uh, Elendil and so on uh, what have you brought to the tournament uh, so I bought uh, Azog plus Goblin Town yeah. with a nice Gundabad Ogre in it yeah interesting adding the Gundabad Ogre I've not seen that before yeah it's um, something that I've tried out for this event I've never actually done it before mm-hmm. um, it's a new model for it, it's different to what I normally bring, which is a banner and a, um, a warbat. Yeah. Um, but I want to see if I can get a bit more of a punchy, sort of hurly monster in there. It's a cool idea. I, 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 I do wonder whether the banner might have helped you here, because there were a lot of times when the, uh, you know, the, there was like a four or a three high uh, roll on the dual roll, and I'm, because of the fight value, I managed to, to win it. But uh, coming up, so did when you were choosing your armies and choosing the matchups, um, A, did you get a choice, and B, would you have gone for me, or would you have chosen something else? Uh, so I absolutely got a choice, but um, I, d- I don't think I minded between any of them, mm. actually. Um, I think I'd have preferred you or the Lothlorien, not the Riders of Rohan that could have ran me around and uh, I wouldn't have had much of a chance, I don't think, about it. Yeah, all those bows and the sort of shooting and scooting and that sort of stuff. Yeah, just the, the I've got five-inch movement, they've got five-inch movement and shooting. Yeah. Um, I don't think I could have actually done much against them, but yeah, that, that's true. That's true. So, and um, when you came up against me, we got seized the prize. Uh, first turn, I, I march everything over the over the prize. Essentially, well, not everything. A captain and a, a Rivendell knight over the objective, with the intention of screening it off. And you slam Azog in there first turn. I gotta ask, first turn, was there a, was did you debate whether you should march as well or not? I did. Um, I think I made a little bit of a misplay in deployment. Um, my marches weren't very well positioned, so I just decided to let you have it and then come and try and fire back off you. Yeah, and with Azog, Goblin King, Gundabad Trolls, you've got some hitting power yeah, to potentially I, take it off. Yeah, I, I, I thought I would be able to at least contend with your big heroes and punch through your line, because yeah. you've not got the highest defense of an army, so... I, I thought I could punch through. Yeah, I was guess I was relying on the fight value, wasn't I? Really, in this in this matchup, which did pay off. It's fair to say. But then, of course, seize the prize is seize the prize. And uh, uh, we were watching on the other table where um, Aaron Pullen, uh, who's brought Smaug, was trying to dig up his prize with his basically his dumper truck of a model uh, flying onto it. The same sort of thing was happening over here and on the uh, table with Tim next to us. None of us seemed to be picking up the prize earlier on. Um, I think it took 
I had three goes at it with a restaurant uh, to try and get the prize and failed every single time. And then basically your line arrived. So it was, it, I was I was shielding it off, but it was still, who's going to get this? Like it was it was a bit of a dicey dicey kind of worry to w- work out who's actually going to get it. Yeah, absolutely. And my my main objective was to not let you get on a big hero. Yeah. Because. Yes, I've got Azog, but getting Azog into that specific hero, especially with your Bilbo hovering around, was, was really hard. Yeah, I thought that's why Arrestor was my choice. I thought the Terror would stop him getting charged by goblins, um, and he's got a couple of points of might for strike, so I thought mm, maybe maybe he can put, put off Azog if it does happen. But either way, it just never happened. Eventually, a Numenorean warrior picked it up because uh, uh, Arrestor had been charged so constantly by other stuff uh, that... My guy had it, but in the meanwhile, there's this tiny little ruin on the middle. Like literally, it's the flimsiest piece of uh, ruin, but it was sort of integral to where this, how this game flowed, because you had your Goblin King pushing through on the side of the uh, the ruin. My army was kind of castling up around this ruin. And when I'm talking a ruin, it is literally four inches long and two, maybe one inch wide at its widest bit. So properly tiny bit of terrain, but integral to this game, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely, and it especially as the objective was around it and there was a door window so we could actually play around it a little bit Mm. Um, and and then it also stopped my big modelled heroes getting in so the Azog the Gundabad Ogre if if they could have maybe wheeled into your your heroes it it might have made a bit of a difference it was basically base sizes wasn't it your Gundabad troll and your Azog have big bases so I can I can reliably shield them off and, and put them off. And I, we, we had a couple of fights, uh, Azog versus Elendil. I think it was a strike off in the second turn, or was it third turn? Or We only had one, we only had one fight on yeah, them. Yeah, just a one fight. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my, my plan was to run you out of might completely yeah. and then still have some in reserve to pick where I wanted to have my yeah. moments. And and it felt like I got, I got that but then got a bit unlucky when I actually got to strike up against well, Orlando. Well, you'd also you'd also spent three points of might on the very first turn because you charged Azog into the captain and the Rib Knight um, and rolled like a three high or something like that, and I got the six. So you were like, ah, oh, shit. So uh, you rolled the... Um, you, you spent the three might to kill the captain, which is definitely the right thing to do, I think, because he was... His might there would have been so important at shielding stuff off. The lance bonus as well. I could have poked holes in you, all that sort of stuff. But um, it... Later on, I, you got kind of payback because Elendil squiffed a dice against, I think it was just two or three uh, goblins or something like that. And because you'd piercing struck and, and my horse is vulnerable, I was like, I've got to spend two points of might on this. So we'd both spent big resources on our big heroes quite early on. But uh, as, the, as the game sort of progressed, it was, it was more of think about the model placement and where, who, uh, a kind of a bit of a game of chicken as well, because uh, we're both fight seven we were running out of my it was like do you want to charge me or do you not and I'm trying to do psychological warfare saying things like well I've got an elven blade in there I've got a banner what have you got James <laughs> yeah absolutely and I it, it was more your Bilbo that I was scared yeah. about oh, yeah, yeah. and and the ring the ring effect I, I know the ring effect I have golem in my army so I I wanted it back to yeah. be honest but um, it, it wasn't going to happen in the end um, yeah. it was really nice that on the last turn um, Bilbo didn't get to come into a combat. Yeah, so so I rolled a rolled a one on the Bilbo uh, Will of Evil ring check, which I thought was like, oh, f- that's it. So at the last, basically, in the penultimate turn, the go- we'd both broken a while ago. We were getting very close to 25%, but both of us had to 25%. You hadn't. I won the priority, so I knew your guys are going to run as long as I charge everything. But 
crucially in the penultimate turn, the Goblin King had killed that Numenorian guy who had the thing, despite me being in combat with Bilbo and Arrestor uh, and, and the Numenorian. So I thought I'd have it, uh, I'd, I'd protect the Numenorian, but no, no. You killed him, and then, the la then Bilbo failed to charge in the next turn. So it was like, oh, God, what's going to happen? He has an Elven Blade, which is really handy against the Blubber. Elendil had charged in there as well. So he ha I had the fight value advantage, but I was so worried about that Blubber save. Pot the potential for that was brutal. And essentially, it just came down to, you know, can, can I get enough wounds on you to power through that Blubber save? Because they're three ups, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're, they're really good. They're, they're three ups that get negated by magic and... Elven Blades, yeah. but apart from that, it's a three-up save every time, and then he also has a fate. Yeah, so it's it's dangerous. So I I've got eight attacks to do not the Goblin King down. Uh, we decided so strength five um, is wounding him on fours, but of course the uh, he's got the uh, the uh, massive forge weapon, so it's actually wounding the Goblin King on threes. So eight, I think I rolled eight dice. Uh, what did I get? I, I think there was five wounds, three of them uh, failed, no more might left. So it was all down to how many you, you pass. And the blubber, blubbery saves, I mean, it, 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 it was close. Yeah, it was absolutely close. And I, I had two wounds left because you'd wounded him earlier in the game. And then I passed three of my blubbery mass saves. So I had two wins to take and still have my fate. And it just came down to the 50-50 whether I passed my fate or not. Yeah, and then the fate, it was a roll of a one. Goblin King out of my so the the relic passes right back to the uh, the High King of Numenor, and and gives me a very 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 close victory on that 50-50 basically. And I mean there were a lot of 50-50s in this game, and I, I was bemoaning the lo the loss of them to be fair. Like they were you know not digging up the, the relic a few turns in a row, and then failing to get the move off to get Bilbo to put his ring on for I think two turns or three in a row maybe. Um, but that. I'll take. I'll, I'll, I'll give up all of those because I got the last one, uh, and then it ended up being a six-two because uh, I'm just slightly over the over the lip of the halfway mark, which uh, we did double check with uh, Dan Entwistle, your teammate, who's also one of the rules writers. <laughs> so we thought, yeah, let's let's go with him. He can decide that. But either way, James, it was an incredible game. I I think we were both like pulling out all the stops for little moves here, there, and everywhere, and it just. It felt really well matched. I don't know about you, what do you thought? Yeah, I absolutely loved that game. It was really close at most points in time. We both broke on the same turn, yeah. so it didn't feel a bit unfair on one or the yeah. other. We both caught pretty much the same time as well. So. Yeah, um, we, we had very similar model counts coming down through, through the numbers, so... Uh, yeah, well, actually, that's worth mentioning, actually, because it felt like that because your got, uh, mercenaries never arrived, basically. They turned on the last turn, and then, like, half of them ran away anyway. So, so yeah, because I, I have 38 models, you have 56, but once you've dropped 12 goblins off that, or how many was it? It was, I, it was only nine. Nine, so, nine. But so we're, we're, we're back down to 48. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 47? 47. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, um, yeah, it, it, it was... When you've got the five-value advantage, I guess you expect to be able to make up that number and I did especially with the early heroic combats with Ellendale so it did feel an even fight for most of the game and then yeah just just I think probably purely down to me marching in the first turn covering over the objective just gave me that little pip of advantage which um, you know often these games are lost in deployment and and I think like you said earlier your, your marches might weren't quite in the right place maybe to contest that and also you don't have any cavalry other than Azov yeah, I, I don't. Um, the Gundabad Ogre does move eight. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. So you could have so, done it with him. Yeah. So I absolutely could have marched, been like right up in your face. Um, but then I'm putting it down to a roll off, and I don't really just want to put it down to a roll off every time. Yeah. I want to be like, yeah, you can have it. And I'm pretty sure I could just punch a hole through the middle if I needed to. 
if I'd have just put the Goblin King, the Ogre, and Azog right in the middle, I'd have probably punched a hole through if I needed. Yeah, you're totally right, totally right. Either way, Jay, it was a cracking game, 6-2 uh, to you, but uh, best of luck uh, to me, sorry. Uh, best of luck for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, absolutely, best Cheers. of luck to you. Cheers, mate, thank you. Game number three, and final game here at uh, Heroes of the West for day number one. Uh, playing against, I can't remember your team name actually. Uh, uh, Bish now. Bash Bosh. Bish Bash Bosh, very nice. Uh, um, come from Bash. Come from Bash. Derby. Oh, lovely. Very nice, very nice. So, uh, relatively local for you as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and playing against Niall, um, first of all, could you give us a vague idea of what's in your team so we have an idea of what I could have played and what, what everyone else could have played up? Yeah, so we've got in it, we've got another Easterlings force, Dragon Emperor. Of course. And um, we've got a Fell Beings of Mirkwood. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then your good side, you've got a, a, a Boromir-led Gondor force. Yep. There's some dwarves, and I can't remember what the other army is. Uh, the other one is a Gladrin. Ah, yes, elves yep. who, who have had to fight some out. And So w was this the sort of matchup you wanted at the start of the, uh, the round? Were you were you gunning to try and play against me and my uh, Numenor, or, or was this a force upon you? Uh, well, I've fought two Galadrim already today, so I would rather fight Numenor than Galadrim again, basically. Yeah, fair um, enough. I'm mainly shooting, so you don't have blinding lights, so that works for me. Yeah, fair enough. So, Heirlooms of Ages Past is the scenario, so... We all know it's a bit of a swingy one. Uh, obviously, we've got to get those objectives, uh, roll a six... One, if anyone picks it up, then it's you know it's it's a different game. Um, but basically, we started with some maelstrom, and I actually think you made a bit of a unusual decision. Maybe it was my my thought. Basically, in the first turn, um, I rolled a one on my Elendil and Captain after Arrestor turned up on his own. So Arrestor and his very fragile warband of Bilbo, two um, spear dudes and a knight and a bow dude turned up on their own. And you ha you had a chance to really exploit that, but you didn't. You didn't spend any might to get your uh, your guys on him. Was there was there a reason for that? Um, just he looked scary. Yeah. To be truly honest to you, I've seen enough elves versus uh, the only six that I rolled with with the with the betrayer, and he's got a bow warband. I'd rather have sitting back shooting into the middle of the grounds. Did you not want to spend might? Because I know you did get some rolls that you could have mighted up. Uh, I'd much rather. I've got no shenanigans with might in here, so I'd much rather keep the roll that I've got and just go forward and see where I get. Fair enough, fair enough. So that was the first turn. Um, so you moved on. We were both basically shielding off objectives. I think Elendil took an extra turn on a roll of a one to come. Yeah. But other than that, it kind of ended up in a, in a, a relatively pitched battle kind of vibe. Um, and we were, we were screening off objectives in the hope that, uh, you know, you, you'd screen off one, I'd screen off another to try and move into the middle, hit all of them. If no one rolled a six, it would have been a bit of a war over who, who then took the objective. Um, but... After some early posturing, some moving, some shooting, you killed a couple of guys in shooting early on, um, and then we really got into it. Your uh, African guard in the middle picked up the objective, which decisively changed the game, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was in the middle, so at least it was like there's potential for a war, but did you think you had it sewn up then? No. I definitely was worried, especially with the flanking side. I had less troops against Elendil yeah. that I needed to make sure that that was reinforced and then rolling that first one yeah. so he was immobilised on the first turn of his movement really made me worry because yeah. I didn't know but then I'm sure as you'll say yeah. Elendil didn't do too great in the combats yeah yeah sadly so Elendil had lost his horse in uh, an early round of shooting yeah. um, he, he was he basically I think 
he was about he, he was going to heroic combat through the line he wouldn't have been able to get the guy with the objective right. but he would have definitely made a big hole if he had had done any work and and the problem wasn't necessarily that he wasn't winning fights, because I think he won all of his fights, maybe bar one, yeah, uh, just the one. Um, he, he just didn't, despite needing like threes to wound everything, he just kept rolling things like ones. And, and, and I, I was very much aware that Suladan and um, obviously the Betrayers, uh, Transfixers, and Raza was kicking about. So you had so much might for your heroic uh, strikes. I was, so resi- I was much more sort of reluctant to spend any might to get kills on chaff. Um, so it was, it was just, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a bit of a grind in the sense that I was, I was really struggling to break, break through uh, very early on. And of course, once the the lines clashed, you're sort of mostly fight four, uh, or you got a lot of fight four spears, and you got Abercrombie guard and stuff. So, so we were kind of even on the fights. But my banner got pinned on one side. You've got a much bigger banner, so I think you were winning the the lion's share of the fights, weren't you? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And then obviously I've got the Abercrombie that wound yeah. for sure pretty much whereas you're struggling to wound yeah. even mine really because I mean of yeah I mean they shouldn't really they, right. they, I've got two often I had two two strength fours trying to get a, an out a, a, a Haradrim and, and I, I did feel like it I don't think I got my, my the fair share of kills when I did win the fights but I think you, you were winning more fights as you would expect because yeah. you had the, ba- uh, the bigger banner range but uh, and I think that just ground me down I mean you'd already in uh, so I mentioned early on you got two kills from bows or something like that but there was a really really nasty round of shooting quite early on I think where you got something in the region of six or maybe seven guys yeah definitely elves were gone as well so the 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 rider the the, uh, sorry the Rivendell knight the elves but they were all sort of suffering yeah definitely yeah I tried to dismount as much as I could before you got into combat just to stop that charge and mean that I've only got the horses and you haven't yeah yeah Yeah. and then um, uh, there was some combats where you got sort of Raza who unveiled that the captain was his target, so he got the, the, the fight value buff, which is which was a wise move, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, otherwise I'm going to a roll-off on Elven Blades or I'm going to someone that isn't fight six, so yeah. I'm not going to beat them, whereas the captain's fight five and I could yeah. maul him in one turn. Yeah, so he gets the plus, plus two fight value uh, against a chosen hero that he reveals uh, suddenly. So, so I mean, I mean, generally, I, I think... I think that obviously, the look always swings in uh, backwards and forwards. It's like, for example... Your magic was very good. You kept rolling sixes, but on the other hand, I did keep rolling sixes back to resist. So he was only, uh, Ellender was only resisted, uh, uh, only transfixed in the very last turn. Although that did prove to be a crucial turn. Um, Arrestor survived for quite a long time, despite being surrounded by lots of people fighting Suladan and all this sort of stuff. So he did all right, but just I think just the the lines really evaporated, and and I, I was kind of relying on the fact that. My lines should kill your guys pretty ha- easily, even the African guard, um, and and they just didn't, even even when they uh, uh, when they were fighting. So I think it just the, and then of course you start getting the raps and all that, and it just really spirals out of control. But I, I like to think I played Elendil relatively well, if, if only he would win any of the key combats. Definitely, yeah. if you could just win and wound, you'd be winning all day long. Absolutely. So so in the end, um, it was actually a pretty disastrous loss to me. Um, I got an 11-2 loss. Um, basically, the final turn, I mentioned that uh, this was the first time that Ellendil had failed a, a resist roll. He, he only had one will and his two res- native resists left and one might. So, you know, it's, 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 he's expected to fail eventually. But that was the one turn that Sulalan can get in, surrounded and all that sort of stuff. And he still, it, just to rub, rub salt in my, uh, my saltiness wound already, uh, he rolled a, a three high or something shite like that on, a, on his six shielding dice. So it really, really didn't go well. And then you managed to just um, bump him uh, on the last one. I, I, I think you only scored three 
wounds, was that right? Yes, yeah. yeah and then uh, I rolled a two on the final fate, uh, so the, the one might point was, uh, was irrelevant, sadly. So it was a really, really disastrous loss. I don't know how the rest of my team is doing. Um, it looks like, I'll just have a quick glance at the sheet. Uh, yeah, we've got at least one, uh, two wins on, on the cards, I think. Um, but I'm not 100% sure. So who knows what, will, what the day will bring tomorrow. But either way, um, Niall, thank you very much for the game. Uh, uh, apologies for, for getting all salty. Uh, as I've, uh, I say this on the podcast a lot now. Um, but either way, uh, congratulations. Thank Best you. of love for the next time. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Thank you very thank much. You. Yeah. So we're fresh off round four. Now, I just played Ed Ball. So um, I'm, he it works at uh, Games Workshop, so is therefore unallowed to talk to the Entmoot podcast. Um, but I will summarise the victory I had over Red Ball uh, with uh, a slight sort of smile on my lips uh, as a 9-3 win against his Black Riders Legion. Um, essentially what happened is his Black Darts failed to do uh, as much damage as they should have done and I sneaked through with Elendil, uh, managed to heroic combat off the Witch King, off the board um, for a, a win in Recon and just managed through a, a combination of good dice rolls uh, and good courage rolls to uh, to just get triple off the board, but uh, I won't, won't labour the uh, the win there. I got over uh, you know a, a, a very good top table player. I certainly won't labour that because we're here to talk to Aaron Pullen, team captain, um, who of course uh, we've spoken to on, on the podcast many times. Aaron, you're leading the charge for the fella bellies. Do you have any idea how this this team thing actually works? Because I've been trying to summarise it briefly at the start of each game, but it's quite a complicated thing. The draft. Don't get me wrong, I'm still getting my head around it right now. Yeah, um, and we're what, four games in? <laughs> yeah, four games in. Don't get me wrong, um, I like it, it's good, um, but it's just getting your head around it. Um, obviously a lot's going on when you're organising, you know, who's going where, what's going where, but if you just sit down with your other team captain, um, have a discussion with them, take your time, uh, you'll get the gist of it. It's just a bit, how do I put this? Um, all over the place. Yeah, it, it, it requires a lot of thinking before the game is even started, doesn't it? Uh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, a lot of thinking. So, yeah. so I think I think I'm right in saying basically you and your the other team captain roll a dice, and then whoever wins gets to put a one army of our three good or evil armies, whichever one we've rolled for, uh, in secret down on a table of our choice. That's the first thing, right? Uh, that's correct. Yes. Yes. And then what happens after that? Because that's the bit where I get blurry. <laughs> okay. After that, um, both teams reveal their first army that they uh, put down. Uh, the next step is we can then choose who faces that force, which was in secret. Yeah. Okay. So, so we, both teams are chosen a secret good force. They unveil the secret good force, and then the opposing team then chooses an evil force to go for it. That's correct. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. And after that, there's more secretive stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just gets even more. Uh, crazy. So after that, the next step is we put down another secret force so the opponent don't know what you're putting down. Um, again, the next step you reveal and try and match that up in a way that, in a way that one fails. Of them, one of them stays secret, doesn't it? Yeah, one stays, stays secret at all times. I think the last drop. Uh, you kind of know what you're playing against and you can kind of manoeuvre that into your favour yeah. to a degree. To a degree. So the long and short of it is it's very complicated, but the result is actually a really interesting 15 minutes before the game um, where you're sort of having a bit of banter with the other team, you're sort of, uh, we're all having a bit of a laugh together, sort of negotiating who we think we'd like to play, who we wouldn't like to play and all that stuff. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I really like the format. Oh, I do, yes. It's... Um, 
it's different, which um, different is always a, a good thing. You know, we're trying something new or relatively new here. Um, a lot of people do like it. Uh, there's had a bit of feedback, and yeah, in general, I think it's it's a good thing. Yeah, and, and it's, I think one of the things I like a lot about it is that you're always getting good versus evil matchups. Uh, so it's a, but there's, it feels like you can try and negotiate a, a slight edge if you can. Um, it, yeah, and, and obviously there's the team camaraderie element. So if you lose a game badly, at least you can pick up off the back of it and, and you know, maybe the whole team has won anyway. That's exactly what I was going to point out. Um, in a team of six, you know, if you've lost your game, don't worry about it. As soon as you finish your game, you know, you might finish early. <clears throat> Some of my games uh, this weekend. Yeah, you've uh, got a smile, haven't you? <laughs> I have, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but yeah, I have got him. Uh, you know, if I've won big or won, lost big, you know, half hour into the game, I can go and support my teammates then, see how they're getting on and, you know, just analyse everything what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's great fun. And so we've got one more round left. I don't know how the games have gone so far. I know you've been keeping a tally um, uh, so far in this round. I think we're on so two wins and two losses so far, uh, which includes my, my very, very lucky win against uh, Ed. Um, so, I mean, what's it looking like on the other boards? We've got, um, I think, oh, I think, in fact, we have a, a live result just coming in now. Uh, it looks like uh, Tim, who is uh, leading the army of Gothmog uh, in success, uh, Tim, Tim, how did that game go? We're just doing a sort of uh, a lunchtime summary. I did everything right. <laughs> everything right. It was ace. I was like uh, four turns off the end. I had ten models off and he'd got none. I got my Gothmog off so these like, um, hero of legend wouldn't keep any of my orcs alive. And then I passed every fucking curve. <laughs> Pardon my French. I could not, stabbing, piercing strike, I could not get an orc to fail a courage test or die for three turns. It was, it was a miserable end for what was going to be a, a nice victory turned around to a 6-0 loss. So, what can you do? Very unlucky there. So, so that actually makes two wins and three losses there for the final round. So it's all down to Harry West, who's currently playing uh, Jasmine Tetley's uh, Assault on Lothlorien. I don't think um, Harry's got any b models off the board yet. So I think it might be a, a, a fairly decisive win on Jasmine's part. I think we knew that at the start. So looking, looking like we're going to lose this round, but that doesn't, that doesn't matter too much. We're going into the, the final game, having very much enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the process. So on to uh, game number five. Thanks, Aaron, for chatting. Thank you. Thank you. So the final game here at Heroes of the West. They're packing the stuff away around us. Uh, and we're on, I think it was, was it table four or three? Table four. Table four, table four in the final round. So uh, there's still one game currently going. Uh, we have had some major losses on uh, our side uh, this round, but uh, we'll reveal what happened in our game in a second. But first, let's talk to Tom, uh, the opponent in the uh, final round. First of all, what have you thought of the, uh, the team sort of uh, the, the, the format, the, the fact that we got good and evil and all that? Because I think it's the first time this kind of tournament has worked with good and evil. Yeah. What did you think? Yeah. So I, I played in the Warhammer World teams last year yeah. and really enjoyed that. So we wanted to do another teams event. Uh, I enjoyed, enjoyed it being good and evil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you get more thematic matchups, so that was a good thing. Um, yeah, it's been a good day. Yeah, it's, it's the, there's something about that, uh, that draft bit at the start where it adds yeah. that, uh, that frisson of excitement that you kind of, you maybe don't get when you, uh, you don't have a choice of the thing. You just kind of go, oh, I'm playing this, and then you yeah. get on with it. Yeah. Whereas now there's like, oh, who might I play, which is cool. Most of the, most of the games I got matchups I, I liked, so it's, it went well. Well, so let's go on to this one then. Uh, so you've got, uh, just give us a summary of your army list, first of all. It is the Assault on Helm's Deep. Mm -hmm. uh, so... There's three warbands yep. and two siege ballistas. Yeah. 
Uh, the commander has a, a bomb with him. Yeah. And it's a total of 49 models, so that's a lot of Urukai. A lot of Urukai. So you outnumber me by 11, and you've got a bomb, and two ballistas, and quite a few crossbows as well. But uh, there's a, the odd, odd sort of smattering of uh, berserkers. Is that actually no? They were just the crew, just weren't one, they? Yeah, yeah just, just one the berserker. one. Just for that that um, that bomb team. Uh, so we're playing capture and control, which is the one where you flip all the tokens over uh, to try and take control early on in the game. Um, I set up very. Uh, so you'd put a ballista down. I set up one of my warbands, and you. No, I think I put one warband first, and then you put a ballista, and then I put another warband, and you put another ballista, uh-huh. and then my final warband, and then your army deployed. Yeah. Um, and I deployed on the centre line, yeah. and the very first turn I realised, well, uh, <laughs> as soon as you deployed your stuff, I realised I'd made a bit of an error uh, in the opening thing. Just, just explain what happened. Well, I can also deploy up the line, yeah. and, and I have a bomb, <laughs> bomb ready to go. Yeah. So with the Lendor being there, he's a very tempting target. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was the, the play I went for. Uh, it does rely on moving first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you do get that off, I think killing a Lendl, potentially, with the bomb, first yeah. turn. D6 wounds. Could win the game. It, it's, uh, I think it's pretty decisively going to win the game. So we called the move off in the, uh, the first turn. Thankfully, I won it. Um, I'd boxed myself in a bit. Uh, but so I had to dismount Elendil in the first turn, sneak backwards onto some difficult terrain. So he was moving half, all this sort of stuff. But uh, it did mean that uh, Elendil was free from the bomb for uh, that early turn, and and actually eventually the bomb became disabled by uh, by just a sort of uh, the melee that my, I, I marched my uh, captain in to sort of relieve. Um, Ellendil's warband uh, because you'd, you'd sort of deployed everything on one side essentially was the, was yeah. the plan there just just try and it's going to be yeah we'll try and wipe out that flank and then come back and fight the other yeah. guys yeah which I, which I think it was probably a solid idea when you had when you had the bomb uh, if the, that roll off had gone your way that was absolutely a solid idea but it did mean that I could tag three of the objectives and then just close down on the other two and, and in fact I had a really good chance of spending most of the game with, with the, uh, the six points um, on my side and then just hemming you into a corner. But, of course, the, the games, uh, you were playing the long game, I suppose. Was that, was that your plan overall? Yeah, so I'd hope to draw the rest of your army over to that flank yeah. and then send a couple of guys off to go and contest the objectives yeah. uh, towards the end. Uh, but, well, we'll see. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's, I guess it, that, that's the problem, isn't it? It relies on you being able to have enough dudes to um, send off in that direction. Yeah. And, and I guess it also relies on you ha- being able to win the, uh, the fights in the centre and, and, you know, have Elendil and Arrestor and people not, not do so much damage. Because, obviously, your ballistas were pretty much out of action after the first couple of turns because um, they got a couple of shots off, but they scattered into the wrong people and you know killed a couple of guys, but nothing special. But then once the lines clashed, there was there, you could have taken some very risky shots, but it probably wasn't worth it. No, no, I, I rarely shoot into combats. Yeah. There are a couple of chances, uh, such as going for the captain. Yeah, didn't quite pay off. Yeah, I think yeah, I spent the might on the ballistas too soon. Yeah, I think you, you spent the mic crucially. You spent it on the um, the, the rolls to hit yeah. rather than the uh, the rolls to to wound, which or to scatter, which may. I know you definitely rolled a five at one point in the scatter, which yeah. could have been an an amazing hit on on. I think it was a rest all through loads of stuff, so it could, it could have been pretty nasty. But um, I think re- relatively quickly after that, I, I sent my captain within the shooting range of one of them, and that that ballista was uh, was. There was a big block in the way blocking the other one off. So, so I thought that was the main danger. And once I'd done killed 
the crew from that uh, from that charge, I was less worried about the shooting and the captain could rejoin the fray uh, and crucially take one of the objectives himself. So he had that one sewn up for most most of the game. But it, as these games go on, it was a bit of an ebb and flow. You know, it started with me being fairly confident about objectives four, five, and uh, three in the sort of the back and the middle and my left flank. Um, but it ended up being the op- complete opposite by the end. Yeah, we uh, got to flip the middle ones with a, a pikeman, managed yeah. to break through and, and flip those. Uh, but yeah, there's one key elf bowman that held on to one of your ones. Yeah, so early on I'd sent um, my Rivendell knight to the back objective and the elf bowman to the left objective um, with the hope that they'd stand on them, shoot a bow, the Rivendell knight would slowly work his way up maybe plinging uh, arrows into spearmen uh, pikemen and uh, and getting back but the elf just stayed there because he was so far away from the main combat that I just thought well I'll carry on plinking arrows but in the end he ended up standing on the objective and just holding his ground against uh, a siege crew which had been dragging the uh, the, the ballista halfway up the uh, the field which which was a cracking move to be fair I mean logically the I think there were two combats you fought there um, You'd, you'd like to fancy your chances in at least one of those and you would definitely yeah. kill it because there'd be six dice looking for five. 3v1, three, three <laughs> yeah. you'd fancy it, but not this time. Not this time. That elf was valiant. He, uh, I think the first time I rolled the six and auto won. The second time you rolled quite poorly, like a three high or something like that, and I managed to get the win and push them back off. Uh, no kills, but crucially held on to that objective as you mentioned the pike went through the middle objective and tagged the back one as well after a couple of turns of movement Arrestor had had done some stuff in the middle but not a lot I think he tried to kill the captain a couple of times and failed um, but eventually broke backwards to try and get to the central objective was fractionally out of it so I at this point we'd had um, I had one of the objectives in the uh, your deployment uh, you had two in the centre of mine, and we were really hot, hotly contesting the one that was closest to Elendil, who had been heroic combating in a sort of uh, a just churning through your lines, you know, very, very little stopping him despite the lack of horse. And um, eventually, uh, you, I, the captain managed to flip one that you had taken in your uh, taken back in your own deployment, and Elendil and a ca- uh, dude were. Uh, neutralising another objective, you, you managed to hold on to that one, which was pretty good going. But in the end, really, the, the thing that swung the game to me only just by a fraction was was that I managed to kill the captain, uh, your your leader, uh, the commander. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I, I think was probably the only mistake you made in the whole game. You you charged the, the turn after mm. I had I, I had a chance to kill the captain and or, or even wound him, and I rolled. I needed three high to wound him or something. What was it? It'd be five down to four. No, fours. Uh, and I got one wound uh, off the three dice and no might. And uh, you managed to fake that one roll. But then you decided you wanted to go back in for another shot. Oh, I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, was, which I was like, oh, okay. Now I, now I, I feel yeah. like I'm definitely going to get that wound off because you'd spent the fake. What, what, was, there a, was there a thought process through that? Or did you just not really think about it? It, it was as you were out of might. I thought three dice versus three dice. Yeah, I've got a chance to win your leader. Yeah, yeah I suppose that's fair. Yeah, yeah. so that, that was what, what I was going for. Yeah, okay, uh, that's that's yeah. fair. Yeah, I, I thought with my fight a value advantage in the. Um, I think I had a banner, and I think you probably did have a banner yeah. as well. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe it wasn't as a sure surefire thing as I thought, but either way, I heroic combated off off the captain, and then was able to help uh, neutralize one of the objectives, which was pretty key. But uh, crucially, I'd taken that victory point from the killing of the captain to give me the one 
point advantage. So you had two objectives, I had two objectives because the elf managed to stay alive and we'd neutralised the other. Uh, both of us broke in the end, so it was a 6-5 win to six me. 6-5, yeah. Which is, which, it was incredibly close. And, uh, you know, I think you played it fantastically. Uh, I, I deployed really badly and I was sort of... So, so you wouldn't have deployed that, that in the future? No, <laughs> no way. I, I mean, I, even, I, think, I think I just needed to put uh, Elendil three inches behind my own line. Yeah. And then if you put a bomb at the front, you know you've got to go through the line before you've got to do it. So it just decreases the chances of, uh, of scary bombs exploding, which is, which is good. But either way, it was, it, was, it was an incredibly tight game and, and it was played in great spirits as well, which is fantastic for the end of the tournament. <laughs> really, really, nice, uh, really nice sort of gentle game, even, even though it was, was really tense and close. Yeah, so I'm glad at least some of my opponents had good games against the Assault on Hell's Deep. Yeah, so you, you won, did you win all of the games up until today? I, uh, yeah, four out of five today. Four out of five, yeah. wow, wow. So, so I, think, I think I'm on four out of five now. That, oh, nice. So yeah, so uh, not bad at all, not bad at all. Sadly, uh, my team has been completely mullered by your team, though, so at least you get the moral victory in yeah, the end. That's time. true, yeah. Right, well, thank you very much for playing either and talking to me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much. Cheers. So a surprising amount of success at this event um f- for me f- for me um it is a team event though <laughs> and that's the problem uh, with this uh, this event it means that i can feel very good about myself while my teammates feel pretty down or at least some of them anyway um yeah i think pete uh, and i pete was taking the balrog and he he was doing really well. Um, he played against quite a lot of dwarves, and he was quite happy to be using his black shields uh, with their hatred dwarves. Um, or was it really well ones? I can't remember. Uh, either way, he was doing really well against the dwarves, so he was pretty happy with that. Um, I think there was a lot of dwarves, so he he's just his army just naturally slotted quite nicely into that meta uh, pick there. Um, but it's fair to say. Um, not everyone else did so well. I think Jason, bless him, I don't think he won a game all weekend. I can't remember. I haven't got all of the, the stats in front of me. I've got a um, a spreadsheet which shows me the the results of various characters from each team, but it doesn't have their names on it. So I know that, um, for example, that um, one of our, our team members uh, came second from bottom, but... He uh, that someone the person at the bottom did drop out on the uh, the end of the first day. They had a car crash or something like that because of snow, which came, appeared overnight. Um, I think I think he got one win. Uh, did Jason? Um, so uh, he ended up with the the wooden spoon of sorts. Um, but either way, uh, I think we did we did establish it at the start. His army perhaps wasn't the most optimized it could have been. But doesn't matter. We had a great time. Um, uh, Harry got some wins. Uh, uh, Aaron got some wins with uh, Smaug. And uh, Tim got a couple of wins, but I think, again, Tim struggled. Um, his, I think he got really unlucky in quite a few games. Or so, that was the way he said it. Uh, you heard him earlier uh, chipping into one of the uh, conversations. But I was quite, pretty proud for the last run of the Numenorians um, and uh, uh, Ellen Dillon, his, uh, his dudes, uh, um, uh, his, his Bilbo friend. Um, Bilbo was slow, um, but other than that, it went, it went pretty good. I just I think it's a good combo. Um, and some people keep uh, have said to me in the past, why don't you just have more elves? I, I think the strength of the army isn't in the elves. There's a, maybe I could have a few more elves, like you know half a dozen in total, uh, or maybe a couple, you know, half a dozen more or whatever. But for each of those, I lose a strength four, and the strength four is so good it just cracks through stuff. Um, and the the defense five doesn't really bother me at all. So uh, really, really interesting, uh, really interesting ge- uh, uh, series of games. But of course, you want to know what happened at the end. Who won? Uh, you know, a bit of the thought behind the tournament. Well, 
the the issue with it being a team event is I could have chosen a team captain, but sadly the team captain uh, of the team that won had to go quite quickly um, before the end of end of the event. So I decided uh, to, and also because it was all very late and um, a bit busy, and uh, there was snow and all these sorts of things um, causing issues uh, on the final um, the final sort of round and and all, uh, the final day. Sorry, and, and everything connected to that, it meant everything was in a bit of a rush. So what I've done, I've compiled all this stuff together uh, and in one big chat with the man, the myth, the legend, the TO to end all TOs. It's Will Champion. He's back on the podcast. Hello. Hello. You can't keep me away. No, I can't. I can't. Maybe it's because I just can't keep away from your events, to be fair. Um, not only are they <laughs> excellently well run, they're also very close to me. So it's it's probably the best way of doing things. But this one in particular was uh, definitely caught my eye because of the team element of it. And I've, I've spoken highly of team events before. Um, I guess the first thing is, Will, what, what made you want to run a team's event? I, I am like you, um, a fellow connoisseur of team events. Um, it's a, an interesting spin on a weekend. You know, we go to a lot of tournaments, so it's nice to do something a little bit different. Um, but I'm also helming up the new um, the Nations Cup, um, a new international teams event, and we needed um, an excuse to essentially try our new format and give it a go. Um, and thus, Heroes of the West was born. Absolutely, and and it was a great one because uh, this is slightly different to other team events because uh, there's the uh, usually I think in team events or correct me if I'm wrong it's it's usually kind of blue on blue so you can have good armies against good or evil armies against evil but this one was different. It was we we went old school um, so the the first key change was that it was a, a six player tournament instead of a four player um, so the teams were a little bit larger. And you had to bring three good armies and three evil armies. Um, and the, the sort of the drafting matchup mechanic was built around good playing evil and evil playing good, um, which is a nice sort of traditional step backwards, I think. Yeah, it, it certainly adds something. And, and of course, it, it, it gives you a, a maybe a different different kind of slant on the list building things as well, because you know you're not going to be playing uh, those good versus good armies, which uh, or evil versus evil, I suppose, in, is is probably more relevant in this one, because I think evil did much better, didn't they? Uh, yeah, evil um, really sort of stole the show, um, which is interesting. In the matter at the moment, evil do pretty well, um, so it's not hugely surprising, um, but you, you often wonder if um, it going into good versus evil might level the playing field a little bit. Um, but, you know, because that's how the game is is sort of designed to be. Uh, but no, it turns out Evil did just fine. Yeah, abs- absolutely, they did. I, I don't know the stats, but I, I vaguely remember talking to some of the top teams um, that, uh, that that basically their good uh, armies were struggling and their evil armies were winning every game. So uh, really interesting to see that. So um, obviously, uh, we it, it was difficult to record a, a, a winner chat um, because of the the nature of there being so many people. So I've got you on, Will, to have a bit of a chat through. And um, what sort of stuff was doing well? And and can you reveal the winner of the event for us all? I can indeed. Um, so the winning team um, that really sort of just blitz the whole weekend, to be honest, uh, was Team Any Heroics, headed up by Stephen Denby and Co. Um, you should very much look at their YouTube channel if you haven't already. Yes, yeah, yeah, very uh, well done, chaps. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they, they've got the T-shirts, they've got the uh, the podcast on YouTube, and they also have uh, an incredible painter in uh, John Partridge who keeps winning events, uh, painting events. We'll have more on that in future. But yeah, but, I mean, they, they're really talented. Yeah, and and wasn't he? I think he's doing really well, or has done really well in the uh, the newcomer race as well. So he's a properly good gamer and painter as well. 
He is. He's, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with, I reckon. And an, an annoyingly nice fella. Yeah, just what a knob, really. <laughs> yeah, just absolutely. All that talent and uh, and also nice to boot. But there you go. And so in terms of what the, the winning team uh, had, I know I'm, I'm not asking for a full rundown of all six lists, but what sort of stuff uh, did, the, did the winning team take? And was it was it anything, I guess, that was surprising? Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> So I know I know John himself did pretty well with his Vanquishers of the Necromancer, um, uh, which obviously does quite well in a team format when you've got some control mm-hmm. over your matchups. Um, so I know that Luke O'Brien was using his um, Watcher in the Water, um, which is really good in the current sort of hero-heavy meta, mm-hmm. um, you know, where armies are built around one important character that suddenly gets tentacled. Um, you know, we've all seen the videos. We know what tentacles do to people. Um, <laughs> Stephen Denby, I believe, was using sort of the classic Mordor Suladan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they may have had a host of the Dragon Emperor in there as well. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I know that that list in particular was very prevalent over the weekend. Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, that would I think that would make four evil um, things. So maybe not, one of those must not be in in the mix. But either way, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm sure there was a big big combo. Um, uh, oh, would you say Vanquishers of the Necromancer? Or did, yeah, did yeah, you, yeah. His sorry, I, I thought you meant the uh, the the uh, Necromancer of Dorgulder. Okay, fair enough. Oh, Come that's on, interesting. Harry, you're supposed to be on the cutting edge of, uh, of I, Middle Earth. I've got such uh, such brain fuzz after all of this uh, <laughs> this season. It's it's a need a rest. Need a rest but i mean that that's interesting though so vanquishes and and I'm, I, if i were to guess and throw some uh, throw some guesses out there for the other good armies i would say you know maybe like a lake town type army with lots of stuff in and maybe a, a last alliance that's sort of got maybe got the ring or something like that i don't know but um i it, those sorts of things kept cropping up over the weekend didn't they yes um Iron Bears. Hills was obviously popular oh, yeah. they pivoted back in mm-hmm. Bears were popular um but host of the Dragon Emperor was bloody everywhere. Yeah. Um, I think we might have been was... the only team that didn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> he brought a smile instead, which yeah. is even more respectful. <laughs> That's true. That is true. And But so I guess with this t- sort of team format, it does show uh, perhaps more more so than in other events, um, the, the, the sort of the meta picks, doesn't it? Because there was, there was, as you say, a lot of Dragon Emperors and there were a lot of uh, certain armies because every team sort of wanted to bring one because it was quite a competitive event. It was, yeah. That was um, another sort of key aspect of it compared to some other teams' events. In that it was a fully competitive teams' event, and so people were expected to bring their, you know, bring their best thing. Um, and w- with a good versus evil matchup as well, it just makes certain things even more um, sort of obvious picks. Mm-hmm. Like Smile, which did really well, um, just because obviously you get control over your matchups and. There is generally less magic in the good side of things than there are evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so he got to have a good run of things. And for the Dragon Emperor, unless your opponent's bringing elves, you've probably got the fight value over them, which again just spikes them and makes them even more effective. Um, yeah. So and I think there's a fair few um, Assault on Helm's Deeps as well, which again, it, it, because you've got control over your matchup with the, the draft mechanic, um, some of these lists that often need like a good run of luck to win an event. So like we know that Assault on Helm's Deep is very good, but if you end up with a bum table or a bad scenario, it can kind of be over for you. And when you get to mitigate a lot of those circumstances, it, it puts it really up into the, you know, the, the higher echelons of, of, 
ability. Mm-hmm. Interesting, isn't it? And, and you, you mentioned at the start um, that the this was kind of a, a, a guinea pig event before the the big team championship. Is is there anything that you think uh, you do differently? Is is the draft format going to change? Because I think I ran through it early on in the podcast, but I mean, I took a while to get used to it. But eventually, by the end of the weekend, I think we all got to grips with it. It did take some getting used to, yeah. Um, to be honest, there was a lot of uh, sort of minor tweaks and changes to the rules pack, um, but, you know, for the, the Nations Cup before this event had even gone live. Um, and I'd kind of put my foot down a little bit and said, no, we need to run it exactly how we've written it and get some real data mm-hmm. and real opinions and then we can make changes. Because if not, it's just theory hammer and, and you kind of get a little bit lost in the weeds. Um so the feedback generally was that the event was chuffing fantastic and people had a really good time. And the draft itself was the only bit that was felt a little bit clunky and confusing. Um, so we've put a lot of focus into sort of cleaning that aspect up um, and making it much more user friendly while still, you know, giving you the competitive edge that you want to see. Yeah, I, I think the, the thing that we found was that it, it, it felt a little counterintuitive to both put a good army down at the start um, and then have them matched up when you, you kind of naturally think you're going to put a good army and they're going to put an evil army down and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I, that was exactly. all, it was kind of explained, but um, it, it did take a couple of a couple of runs at it before we all fully got the grips with it. And then, of course, when there's six people, there's always some people who don't pay any attention to the rules pack. So you're relying on your team captain. And if, if, if even two people have got, got slightly the wrong end of a, a stick, it can create a lot of confusion. But but it's interesting. It's uh, I, I certainly, I still, I still really like the format. And I, I do wonder, though, because I've I've played team events before, and we mentioned this before, and that mostly sort of uh, fluffy kind of uh, you know fun events. This this is the first competitive team event that I've done, and I know they've been running in the World Team Championships and the ETCs and all these sorts of things for years, but um, I, I I never I'd never considered it being as competitive as it was. But it really was. It was kind of you know everyone was trying their best at this this tournament and bringing filth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was quite nice to see that the the attitude was still very positive in the way that we encourage in the GBHL. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone sort of knew what they were there for, but was still, uh, you know, happy to ha- have a bit of a crack and 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 have some fun with it, which was really nice. Particularly on the lower tables when their you know their hopes have been dashed <laughs> and they're they're fighting for the sort of the wooden spoon and the best sporting team and things like that, which you know is always important to maintain at an event as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, but it, yeah, the, it was competitive, but it seemed like everybody had a good time, which obviously yeah. made me very fulfilled. And, and I think the, the interesting thing about this, kind of because there's, I, I don't know how many exactly teams were there, was it eight or ten? or I, I can't Because there's a lot of people, but there was a... Um, it was, was it, uh, 14 teams, oh, 14 teams one of the ringer team. But what is interesting about that is that the it, it shifts around quite a lot, because obviously, even though you've got six t- uh, players in each of those teams... Um, all it takes is one one sort of major win over a minor win, and you pip to, you're quite high up, and then you swing all over the table. So it all felt like there was lots to play for, even in the uh, sort of the final throws of the games. Oh, absolutely, and and one thing that was really satisfying because you often have no control over it is just how close it was all the way through. Um, so I know that the the Crusaders and any heroics had a clash. I think it was round two or three, and I kind of said to them, I was like, you know, this could be really important because if one of you smashes it. Um, it might be a sort of unassailable lead. And then they drew the round and I was like, oh my God. And, and it meant that going into the final round of the tournament, any of four teams, I think, could still take the top spot. It was really exciting stuff. 
Yeah, and, and it was strange because I, I think Aaron Pullen on our team, the captain, uh, he, he said at one point, oh, well, if we win the next two games, we actually are in contention for a podium place as well. So like, even, even the fella bellies were, 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 had a chance <laughs> at one brief period at the end of day, day number one. But either way, uh, it was great. It was really good. I don't know what, uh, where our team actually finished in the end. I know we, we didn't win uh, those last two games, so we got uh, punished uh, quite severely, I think. But uh, So we're probably in the doldrums in the middle to bottom uh, uh, tier, but I, yeah, I was. Pr- I think we finished sort of eight, four, nine. Yeah, I think that, which I, which I'm quite happy with. That's okay. But I did look at the the um, the spreadsheet at the end and found that I I was surprisingly high up per, uh, on a personal way because I think just because the way the matchups worked, I got quite a lot of good games uh, and got good good wins as well. I think I got four wins or something like that, um, and and ended up really high up in the in the tally. I think I was only sort of twelfth or fifteenth or something like that. So it was quite surprising to see the smattering of of people in the individual rankings and how how they were affected because obviously um even in the sort of winning team the they weren't all right at the top of the uh, the leaderboard there were some any heroics teams right down way below me so it's it, it well, really is it. fascinating it's, it's often very much the other way because um in a, in a team's format you often have what's known as the bus player which is the person that gets the matchup that no one else wants um and the expectation there is that they're probably going to lose but anything better than a loss is like an absolute success and so often you can have the most valuable person on the team that helps your team win the event get you know two wins if they're lucky and um, because those two wins were actually the most important ones of the weekend it's brilliant it's a great it's a great way of doing things and and so just finally looking ahead to this european team championship i've seen buzz in the facebook groups already i know ireland are recruiting their team and uh, and it's in belgium just can, what can you tell me at this uh, this stage now i mean it's a few months uh, still 6 months away or thereabouts and what can you tell me about the team championships the european one so it's going to be awesome, obviously. Um, <laughs> you would say that. You're organising it. <laughs> we're, we're really excited about it. So um, it, it's a team of myself, Ali and Matt King um, and Mr. Bradford from Northern Ireland as well. Um, and, you know, we've all been playing sort of international events and been part of the GBHL for over a decade. And we kind of just got to the point where we we're like, you know, what what does the, the perfect international tournament look like? Shall we do it? And so we're, we're trying to put together you know, using our experience, what we think would be the best international tournament um, and then trying to build towards it. So it's a, it's a competitive team's format. There's still a heavy influence on people um, sort of being sporting and having fun with it. There's there's lots of painting prizes. There's um, awards for essentially the favourite team of the weekends, the team that brings the most fun to the weekend, you know, on and off the table, the sort of the party, the party team, if you will. Um, and just trying to turn it into a real experience of a weekend that people look forward to every year. Um, and it's in and Belgium, isn't it? Is it somewhere in Belgium? It is. It's in Antwerp, yeah. Amazing. So uh, we've got a hotel sorted. Um, you know, you can drive or fly, planes, trains and automobiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have 20 teams or, or, or 20 nations that are interested in attending. So fingers crossed, it will be everything that we want it to be. And I know nothing's finalised, but if people can't get there, there is potentially going to be a way of watching some of these games. Is that right? There is. So, so again, this is this is the first year. It's a dry run. Um, we're hoping to 
learn a lot and, and get as much right as we can. But we know that it's not going to be perfect year one. But my intention is to have um, essentially a Twitch channel and we're going to live stream um, one or two games per round um, with English and non-English speaking um, sort of commentary, talking about what's happening and laughing at the silly mistakes people make. Um, so hopefully there will be full digital coverage all weekend for people that are interested. With some sexy voices involved, we hope. We, we, we certainly hope, yes. <laughs> well, more on that uh, in uh, 2024. But, Will, uh, either way, it was a cracking uh, team event, this one, and I can't wait for, uh, for the event in the summer. It's going to be really exciting. Are tickets on sale for that yet? Uh, they will be, so we've sent the, the pack live to the sort of the, the captain's group um, and we hope that tickets will be going live in the next couple of weeks. Brilliant. All right, well, uh, I'll flag that up when, when they do come. But either way, Will, thanks very much for, uh, for the Heroes of the West and a very exciting 2024 ahead. Uh, happy New Year to you. You too. Thank you for everything, Harry. You're wonderful. Oh, thank you. So thank you very much to Will there for summarising not just uh, this uh, Heroes of the West event, but also um, the uh, teasing ahead to that summer event. And there might have been a little bit of a Easter egg teaser, uh, not very well disguised teaser in there um, about, you know, potential streaming of said events, which could be really fun if that happens. Um, very exciting. And not only, I mean, you might be able to guess, not only am I involved in that, potentially, who knows? Maybe. It, it really does depend at this stage. It's very early days. There is someone else who I understand to be involved potentially as well. And they're really cool. I can't wait. Uh, for that to be revealed as well, because it will be a really awesome thing to be revealed. So, uh, yeah, really, really excited about that. And so that is the team event. And the next episode of the podcast will hopefully be here in the uh, the early start of the new year, um, because I'm really, really excited about um, the the end of the GBHL and the start of the next next year. Um, I, I wanted to get a bit of a roundup of everything that's happened um, in the year. So I've gone to the GBHL finale. I'm recording this before, uh, sorry, after the. Um, the, the end of the GBHL uh, finale. So we know, uh, if you're reading the, uh, up on the GBHL website, you'll see all of that stuff um, uh, about the who's won and all these sorts of things. But also, I went and took a really cool army, a really Christmassy-themed army, which I'm really, really proud of how, how the army came out. Um, I've done a video on that on my YouTube channel. Uh, if you search up Battle Games in Middle-Earth, um, hopefully you'll be able to find the YouTube channel and uh, check out the Christmas-themed uh, army that I've taken, uh, which I put a lot of effort into, and the, I'm really proud of that video as well. Um, so uh, and with it being Christmas time, I think people are just not about as much, and they may be moving around, maybe they're, they're spending more time with family, understandably, um, and maybe don't have enough time to watch... Uh, as much time to watch um, Christmas-related YouTube videos about Warhammer uh, or Lord of the Rings Warhammer, um, then maybe maybe uh, th- maybe people haven't watched it as much as I would have hoped. So hopefully, do check that out, because um, I am really proud of that one. Um, and you'll be able to see the results of said uh, army in action at the GBHL finale, not only on my YouTube channel, but in the next podcast in the next few days. And we'll have some special guests for the, the start of the next year season and the roundup of this year's season. So we might even do that as a whole separate episode uh, of just a big chat. Um, but fingers crossed that all comes together, as I hope. And that is everything. Um, if you're listening to this uh, just after Christmas, Merry Christmas. If you're listening to this just before the New Year, Happy New Year. If you're listening to this sometime in the distant future, you missed out. It was Christmas and New Year when I released this, so it's exciting. Um, anyway, thanks very much for, for listening to another Entmoot and... I'm going to say it now because it's the end of the year and all that. Thank you so much to all of my patron supporters. 
um, first of all, because uh, they provide an incredible amount of support and and help towards making all of these podcasts happen. And obviously, uh, it, you know, it's an expensive job going to tournaments. Someone's got to do it. And I do, I do go to them, you know, and I do, do put the effort in uh, against, you know, against my better judgment to so many tournaments uh, in a year. But uh, I really do appreciate it. There, there's absolutely no way I would be going to as many uh, tournaments for podcasts as I do if it wasn't for the patron supporters, um, which, which basically subsidise uh, at least two. Uh, tournaments um, every every month. Uh, well, one uh, one tournament a month, a uh, one tournament a month at least, um, which is which is incredible. Uh, and getting on for two, uh, and you know, I rightly reward those people with with uh, giveaways and try and get um, uh, special content out. And I gave a Christmas Hobbit hole away this year. I've had magazines and all that sort of stuff. But um, it's it's because of you patrons that that uh, I get as much content out as I do. Uh, it's just there's just no way around that. Uh, so thank you very much for that. And. Um, if you're not a patron, don't worry. If you can't afford being a patron at Christmas, it's a very expensive time of year, New Year, and all that sort of stuff. Don't worry. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, go on and keep listening if you're enjoying it. Get in touch. Everyone who's emailed earlier on in the podcast about the uh, about the the confessions of a gamer, the moral maze, quandaries. Um, I love it all. Everyone getting involved in all of those different things. The uh, uh, the giveaways, the the riddle in the dark, the magazine gives away the last couple of times. You listening and you emailing is amazing. It's lengthening out the episodes because I'm re- having to uh, read everyone's comment, and I really I'm, I'm starting to have to then chop them down because in the early days I just read one in full and it was a five minute segment. Now it's like a 25 minute long segment, and I've been subbing your emails down. So I really, really, really do appreciate you getting in touch um, and listening uh, to the podcast, and obviously uh, recommending it because otherwise people new people wouldn't be getting in touch. It must be something to do with you listeners uh, doing it. So thank you again for every and all your support it's amazing and i hope um to continue i will i know i will continue doing it and i hope to continue to provide the content you like so uh thank you very much uh happy new year merry christmas best wishes for 2024 and for episode 84 which is inbound and in the meantime boorarum